we thank you for the privilege of fellowship, but also as we will discuss the privilege of your church and being part of that church and um, being under the sphere of your kingdom rule, which brings about great benediction grace. And we pray, Father, that everything we do uh, uh, going forward in this time together over the course of really over a year, um, that, Lord, it would be informed uh, by Jesus Christ as our Lord and that we are here to extend that lordship into this world. And so, Father, we do pray for our meetings together today. And even now, we pray that you'll bless this food and our fellowship as we eat it together uh, and that there will be a sweet spirit here in your name. Amen. Maybe you've heard this quote, but uh, a little from the vantage point of the devil, what's going on here? Uh, it's scary. It's scary for the devil to see what's going on here. Uh, of course, we all know C.S. Lewis, my dear Wormwood. You mentioned casually in your last letter that the patient, young Christian being tempted, has continued to attend one church, and only one, since he was converted, and that he is not wholly pleased with it. May I ask what you are about? Why have I no report on the cause of his fidelity to the parish church? Do you not, Noy, not realize that unless it is due to indifference, it is a very bad thing? Surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or connoisseur of church. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Uh, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote the Screwtape letters, and um, when was that? I think it was around... Uh, I forgot. He, uh, 1942, uh, he said it was the most onerous and difficult thing he had ever done. In his words, uh, he says, uh, I never wrote with less enjoyment. The strain produced a spiritual cramp. And he goes on and he says, uh, in his wonderful Lewis-esque way, I had to project myself while I spoke through screw tape was all dust, grit, thirst, and itch. <laughs> I love that. But if you've ever read the Screwtape Letters, you really feel that. I feel it from it. I feel the strain and the struggle of that book. Um, I made the great mistake. I, you know, I was telling somebody I probably exasperated my, my, especially my older son. You know, had all these grand visions of being raising him in a Christian home, something I didn't have the privilege of having. And, you know, we were going to do this right. I think somewhere around five years old or something. I had him read the screw tape letters. <laughs> I don't know how old he was, but he was so young. And I remember that was not a good experience for the court yet. Um, and, um, you know, but it really is a, it's probably in some ways his most, uh, well, yeah, gritty kind of a book that I can think of. But what you see in this quote, I think, is, is really a nice introduction to what's happening here. It's, it's the virtue of a parish church, the local concrete, organized church that scares the behebes out of the devil. He would not, like nothing more than for the church not to be uh, uh, a kingdom, a real, true kingdom sphere of rule. He would like nothing more for the church to be kept abstract, a concept that we can then uh, flesh out in any manner of ways that we can. He would like nothing more than to be Christian Buddhist, uh, where we lose the real, concrete, mediatorial sovereignty of God in and through our lives. Um, 
this quote, I think, really picks that up. The idea that, yeah, just do anything. In fact, it's probably better that he just goes to a lot of churches and never sinks in. But what we want to do in this whole course is explore this, this, this advice. You know, it's really, in essence, what we'll be doing is we're going to be looking at why is the church so powerful and what, what roles are demanded in order for that to happen. And so just to sort of put this in context, um, later on, of course, uh, he continues, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread out throughout all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. Mary, again, he's playing on the invisible versus the visible. Um, You know, again, Satan would like nothing more than for our church to remain invisible. Uh, And by that, just an association of of cooperative believers who come together, sing Kumbaya, you know, talk about Jesus, uh, pray with each other even maybe, but never engaging the real uh, rule of Christ as it really comes into our life in flesh and blood. So with that, um, I want us to read Matthew 16. And if you have uh, your Bible, I want us to turn to, and we'll get it started here. Uh Uh-oh, what happened? How did that just go blind? I'm looking at the other one that's waiting for me. Oh, well. (laughs) Now we're getting a phone call. Anyway, anybody want to try to help me on that one? I don't know what's going on. Oh, there it is. There it is. Thank you. That was good. All right, there we go. That's what we're going to be looking at right now. Can we turn that off? (laughs) For now? Okay, who wants to read? Uh, Let's pick up with 16, verse 13. And I'll just tell you when to stop. And we can take turns if you wouldn't mind. Where's my phone? Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he said, but he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Thank you. Uh, what do you what, what's the general let's start in generalities here. What are you what are you picking up here? What do you feel from this passage? The rebuke. What do you feel? I mean, just don't, without getting into any particular passage, just this, this is a good thing, by the way. Whenever you read scripture, you know, one of the first things you want to do is just step back and say, What am I getting from this in a very sort of let, letting your mind see it as a forest, not as trees yet? What do you feel? What's, what's happening here? Sort of the launching of the Okay, there's something, it feels like something big deal is happening here, doesn't it? Right. That's just that simple. Something, it feels like something really big deal is happening here. Anything else? What What are some of the main themes of that big dealness? What's happening? Okay, there's going to, it's going to conclude with a with an exhortation, a call. He's appointing them, he's also putting them in their place as well. Okay. I feel like one of those bonding kind of experiences that you know, launch a church certainly from this, but drawing together uh, what they believe and just the tightening of their relationship. Okay. But I feel a sense of turmoil. Mm. Just what Peter must have been feeling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's set in the context of his hero declaring right. that he's about to get crucified. And not sure how to fit that into the kingdom of God that he's been talking about. It's coming up until this point, the consistent theme, all the way back in chapter 4, but, you know, has been the focus of Christ going out, proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand. And then, bombshell. Bombshell. Whoa. What? <laughs> misunderstanding aligns him with the enemy. Okay, yeah. I mean, this comes across as a bombshell a little bit. This is his first time that he begins to explain the nature of the kingdom of God in a manner that was blowing their paradigms. Yep. But he's very quickly turning everything upside down. Yeah. He's been identified as the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Their expectation of the Messiah is nothing like the way he concludes it. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. Startling. Yeah. So, so let's look at a little more of the details. You can see, can y'all read that up there? Is that yeah. clear enough for you? Yeah. So I want to just step back because we're obviously here to consider the advice of, the, the reverse advice of Scrutate, if you will. Uh, and so let's ask the question, first of all, the nature of the church. What do you see here? What, what does this describe? How is the church described? Given the context, again, I'm kind of going fast through the, the full exposition here, but uh, the context of the kingdom of God, Matthew 4, 17, just to give you a few context here. From that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now what do we hear about the kingdom? Do you see kingdom language in this passage? Somebody read it to me. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Okay. That's pretty significant. So what is the church of, of the church? And, and what is that? Keep reading it. Uh, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be bound, will be loosed in heaven. Okay, but the key point there is that the church is is identified with the kingdom of God. 
right? You see that the language of ecclesia is used there in the Greek and what we call church. And that is identified now with this ongoing, you know, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And now comes the church, which is the, you could say, the epicenter of that kingdom. Because what's happening now in this church? Relative to the kingdom of God. Huh? Binding and loosing. Okay, good. So I don't have this thing where I can see it. It's not big enough for me for here. So let me turn around. So notice uh, you've already the nature of the church. Is it is it a natural phenomenon? No, it starts with the realization that man, you know, flesh and blood did not make bring that revelation to you. And in fact, we're going to see the whole power of the church is rooted in the fact that it is not an institution of, of humanity. We didn't start this gig. We didn't start it up. We didn't dream it up. We did not, by divine institution, establish it. It is a divine institution, not a human institution. And that's huge. Next week, you're going to get knee-deep. Next month, you're going to get so knee-deep in what we call Jura Divino Ecclesiology. By divine law, not by human law. And this idea of how that develops our understanding of ecclesiology. So you see this idea of the, uh, the church as a, the nature of the church. It's one, it's a divine institution. And two, it is identified as the very epicenter where the action is um, with respect to the kingdom of God. Now, that was a major, major big deal for me personally, who uh, had was, was not planning to go and do church ministry. Um, it was, as I said, it, it was something that was culminating. I've, you've heard the story before, but sitting in a second-year Ph.D. seminar with under Skip Stout, reading about the noble dream of historians, and it hit me that the epicenter of the kingdom of God was the church. Because you, when you look back in church history, from a historical point of view, all the action <laughs> that we historians write about, is that's relative to the spiritual inbreaking of the kingdom of God was always happening around church. And I mean concrete, visible church. With concrete, visible pastors doing these creative, thoughtful, reformational kind of thinking. Um, and the university at best was sort of as a parachurch, at best. Um, the university itself. And that was a major thing for me as I was thinking about, because it was a paradigm shift for me in my experience Honestly and anecdotally, I had not felt the power of the church yet. I, I came to it by faith before I felt it. And maybe you, your stories are like that as well. I mean, th- this passage was huge among other passages where by faith I said, hold it. Even if my experience has not really tied this out yet, maybe something's missing in my experience. Because the Bible clearly teaches the church is the epicenter. That's where the kingdom of God is what? And then what? what it, so next is the... Uh, what, what do we hear then? Because of the nature of the church, it's a divine institution, it's not something man can do um, and dream up and, and organize, etc. What's the promise? Yep. Uh, the gates of hell, or the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates are designed in warfare to keep people out. Yeah, yeah exactly. And the church is, is, is being enabled to penetrate the world and the world system. Good. Uh, Have you thought about this passage? Almost always when I hear people utilize it, and I've done it myself, who's the aggressor? The world. That's, that's right. 
But isn't that true? Don't you notice how often when we when we hear this passage quoted and when we think about it, it it's kind of it's it's quoted and uh, you know the the devil's attacking us, but 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 God will prevail. Right. We, we're the fortress. The church is here viewed. Interestingly, though, the the language that's used here is very clearly the language of a fortress, the, the great fortified cities of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, that was a major, major. Uh, strategic plan of, of, of warfare is that you would have a fortified city. And you can just read the history. I mean, you could write a history of the history of fortified cities in the Old Testament. I mean, you just move from one to another to another to another. It was a grave thing, therefore, to breach a fortified city. It was part of the, it was part of the doctrine of hospitality. You know, to come into your city... There was great pride that your city was fortified against evil, and you could feel safe here. That was that was what the mayor, if there was such a, there wasn't, but the, if there were a mayor, that would be what the mayor would brag about. We have great fortification here. You come into this city, and if you're a stranger, you can and you can see that is exactly why through the Old Testament, you see such a deep, deep sense of identity with our fortified city. And if you were, and, and you remember the, the shame. That would happen. Remember in uh, the episode where there were violations. Uh, you know, help me out here in the Old Testament. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah was that where it happened, and uh, and, and they were, you know, sodomized. <laughs> uh, that context, and there was shame. Remember. Um, so yes, the, the language here, ironically, is a little counterintuitive because the image you have is not the church is a fortified city. You have the image of Satan dug in into his fortified cities and the gates of hell, defining those gates of Satan's gates, will not prevail against the overtaking, the, the conquering army of God. Now, have you, have you, look at that passage. It's very clear. It's amazing that that gets lost. Unless you go and really study it and historically you see the church understood it well. So, so you see the church here is viewed as the aggressor. And whatever schemes the devil uh, sets up. Now, there's a, this is a metaphor. I mean, there's certainly other passages where you see the devil portrayed as aggressive. And he's out, you know. But in this image of a fortified city, he's portraying the epicenter of the kingdom of God on the roll, on the move. And no, no fortified city can sustain it. That's pretty cool. Next, the authority. We get to the keys. Anybody want to take a, a, a gander at the keys? What What's going on here? And guys, you know, I find again, if you start getting too technical, you're probably going to miss the point. I mean, just there's a duh factor in most of the scripture. So look for the duh factor. What's the duh factor here? What do you think these keys represent? Duh factor. Access. Access. Good. Access to what? The, the, the sphere of God's rule, the kingdom of God, the sphere of God's act, rule. This church, what makes it so special, why C.S. Lewis portrays Screwtape is so scared, is it alone has the power to open the kingdom of God into this world. Has the power to, to either let you in or let you out. 
Now, guys, you can sit here and your egalitarian, post-democratization spirituality and, and do somersaults around this passage. There's absolutely no way you can get around the fact that in some sense, at least, and we certainly want to talk about that, in some sense, a plain reading of Scripture would tell you that the church has been given the power to admit and demit people from the kingdom of God. Isn't that right? Now, we're going to look at that. Now, notice I put the word mediatorial. And the word mediatorial is a little different um, than direct, if you will. And there's, you know, the, the role of the church, as we'll see later, in relationship to the Holy Spirit, in relationship to Christ. Um, and we'll get into that kind of stuff next week, actually. But just notice at the very, at the, again, it's a devotional almost, that there is a sense in which what happens in the church is that crucial. All right? You want to go ahead and take that out and mess with it? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for doing that. I'm sorry you're having to do it. If you can't, we have a we have a uh, we have a, a, a microphone up here if we need it. Just if that's going to be too much of a problem. Okay. I'm not. I'm not. Okay. Somebody's listening. It's there on mute. Yeah, I don't know if this is going to work or not. If there's no, a it, echo. It sounds like it is. I was just checking because I can't hear it. Yeah. There. Yeah. I understand. So, but you're on Do y'all hear me talking through there? Well, he was not anymore. It was just a song. Good. All right. Yeah, so it's off now. Okay, thank you. Um, so, the keys. Uh, now we get into the what's the activity of the church then? If, and, and by the way, I, I quote there some passages. You can look at them. I put this PowerPoint in your CCB collection, by the way. You can go back and review it later. Um, but uh, it, it comes out of Nehemiah, First Chronicles, etc. Uh, it was it was it was a very significant thing related to the temple to be a key bearer. I mean that was an office. I mean that wasn't just a you know I don't know a custodian opening and closing the doors in the morning or something. It was truly a, a guarding role, and um, and that's the image that you have here. The, the king of God is being guarded by this church. The keys have the power uh, to admit and demit into the sphere of God's sovereignty. The breaking in of the kingdom is now. Isolating, isolated upon the church. And then finally, um, so then that brings us to the activity. Um, verse 19. What's going on there? Right, what's the activity then of the church? What is the church to, What are we called to do? This really gets to the very heart and soul of what the church's mission is. What's our activity, our mission? If the nature of the church is that it's the epicenter of the kingdom of God, if the Success of the church is guaranteed because of God. If the authority of the church is is related to admitting and demitting, what now are we going to be doing? What's what defines the activity of the church? Making God known. Okay, that's that's certainly true, but that's not just admitting and I mean there, that certainly is an aspect of it. But what do you, the word here is what? What's the language of the scripture? Okay. Anybody want to help me with that? What do you think binding and loosing represents? Isn't it speaking truth, correcting what needs to be corrected, and changing the direction? Okay. How do you relate that to binding and loosing? Give me the imagery of that. Certainly I would say that's an aspect. But what do you think binding and loosing? Anybody have an understanding of where that, that idea comes from? 
like defining like what's who, what's what's in, what's mm -hmm. sort of bound up as this thing, and what's what's mm -hmm. loose as yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. You know, you know we, we're, three comments have come to the proclamation aspect. Um, and that's true. But there's an element of, of defining. By, but, but what is binding? I mean, that metaphor didn't quite get me to the defining immediately, at least. It's part of it. Yeah, go ahead. Binding sin. The, the power of sin losing its power. Okay. Um, Okay. Why would the words be binding and loosing? Do you think? You might want to. Okay, people under bondage in your way. Yeah, go ahead, Lisa. Hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. It's interesting, you know, but you're doing the right thing there. I like that you, you're looking for context. You're, you're, you're looking not just, let me come up and be creative here. You're actually going to the scriptures saying, well, i got to find out why did this image come about? How did it come about? The language of binding and loosing is governing a, is government. You are, if you go through acts, you're bound if you're under arrest. You're loosed if you're not, you know, you're free, if you will. Binding and loosing is governing. There's a governing element to it. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, you'll see this in a minute when we get to Matthew 18. In fact, go ahead and turn to Matthew 18. Because now, this is that passage, as many of you know, um, perhaps, maybe one of the most abused passages I know in the Bible in terms of its, its not intended me. Ironically, the way I, when you hear this idea of Matthew 18, where two or more gathered in my name, surely I'm with you. Tell me how you hear that normally out there. Prayer time. Huh? Prayer time. Prayer time, yes. Hey, you know, it, it's Starbucks time. And this is the church where two or more gathered. Whenever two or more gathered, we all know God's here. That means good things are happening, right? Well,. <laughs> It, it, yeah, I agree that, that, that that's a good thing to pray together and to go to Starbucks as Christians and encourage each other. I do believe that. And we'll have to distinguish later. By the way, you're going to be introduced to a lot of technical terms in here. And you're going to find out that, that there's been 2,000 years of studying the Bible and we really need to kind of think about the Bible deeper. Um, and one of the distinctions you're going to see the church has historically made is the distinction between the church acting jointly and the church acting severally. Very important distinction. Someone read that passage in 18, um, beginning in what? I say there. I can't see here. 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. There you go. Let's go. For, where, there you go. for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Thank you, sir. Um, wow, does that give some context now to binding and loosing? What's the, what's the context there? What is he talking about happening here? 
Church discipline. Church discipline is one word to put it, yep. Governing, disciplining. It's bringing people into, under the sphere of God, or declaring them outside of the sphere of God. As a Gentile, that's the language of, of excommunication there. Uh, as, as someone who's not considered to be inside the kingdom of God in that, in that context. But notice very, very carefully um, the word church. How is church used there? Let him bring it to the church. The visible body. The visible body. And a, a church which has been defined two chapters early as, earlier as, not accidentally, of course, the sphere of binding and loosing. The church as it's envisioned as the epicenter of the what? Kingdom of God. What's the kingdom? A sphere of rule. And therefore, binding loosing is an activity of governing the rule of Christ into this world. A rule that's going to be required to eventually conclude with either binding or loosing. Admitting into and declaring as as righteously, uh, as, as belonging to God and His fear under all His blessings of kingdom rule the benediction of the rule of God, or excluding this person from that benediction rule of God. There's no way you can read this. So you have church used both places. You have binding and loosings used in both places. You have a process of a a brother who's in sin. Therefore, in the context of this sin... There is the church acting severally, as we'll discern later. An individual brother going to an individual brother, or sister, sister, whatever. And in the context of what? What would you do? Well, that's where you're going to get into a lot of things you guys said. Think of Timothy. What's the Word of God profitable for? For instruction, for reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And so, yes... There's going to be a whole stage of bringing people into, in order to bring people into the sphere of God's rule, there's going to be a whole phase of individuals informed by the theology of God that's been mediated to them through the preaching and teaching of the church, informed by the practices of God as being mediated through the practices and manners of the church community, acting severally, individual Christians are a part of this process, Acting severally again, even Christians bringing other Christians are involved in this process. But ultimately, it says bring them to the church. Now, that's the church acting jointly versus the church acting severally before. Um, And who is this church? Well, that's been a lot of debate. Uh, Reading it simplistically, perhaps, you would think, okay, on Sunday morning, it's time to bring them up. Um, But if you understand church in the context of this passage, and you could go back and look elsewhere, clearly he's referring to the church insofar as its organically defined community is acting through its officers, through those who have been called, as we'll see later, as governors. And the context there of the assembly then is basically the court. Bring them to the court. Bring them to the church acting as court. The church which then will judge between in and out, bind and loose, 
And there's an act of discipline in that context. Um, you just you just learn gobs as you're going to see this filled out throughout the rest of the New Testament. You'll see this very passage showing up all over the place. You'll see context where where indeed there's going to be an admonition and, and to the church to, to practice this very thing. To let him be as a Gentile. These who were practicing sexual immorality and they were un, not under the discipline of the church as they were doing it. He's saying, church, do your job. Bind and loose. For the credibility of the gospel, for the purity of the church, for the well-being ultimately of that individual person who might therefore be cast out side of the benefits of Christ's lordship in a manner that we might we the, the ultimate aim of discipline of course is to reclaim a sinner. And we'll get into all that you're going to get training on all that before this class is over. You're going to understand the process wherein that happens derived from scripture over the years. So we're going to get all that in there. But right now I just want you to get a sense. This church this church that the devil is scared about, he ought to be scared because there is some serious authority being exercised through this church. It's serious. And we don't tend to have that kind of notion of the church anymore. Do you compare or contrast that to the Old Testament temple? Because I mean, the temple also sort of was a was an access to God through, through, the, through the movements, the the sacrifice, the confession, uh, what the priestly duties were. And, and also, it seemed it acted as a court. I mean, a lot of times, exactly. the Jews would bring their uh, grievances to uh, the, the temple leadership. So, so what's the what's the paradigm shift here with the church versus the, the temple? Or what's I'm tempted it? to say for the sake of, of, of simplicity, there is no paradigm shift. That is the old covenant church. And we are the new covenant temple. <laughs> if you want to use that term. The term ecclesia was used to define Israel, gathered, called out of the world as a temple mediator. The temple language, all temple means, is, is, is just think mediatorial. There is a presence, but temple gets at the presence and power of God. You're going to read about that next week too. The, so the church as temple, you're going to read, is church as mediating power. The church as covenant institution is the church defined by divine law in a contractual relationship with God. And that's the paradigm, if you will, the rule of faith and practice related to the church. So you're going to see that there was never a time in all of redemptive history where God was not uh, mediating or, or, or accomplishing salvation without a covenant and without a temple. Never once will you ever see salvation transaction transacted where both of those realities weren't interdependent, interrelated one to another throughout redemptive history. Never. From Genesis to Revelations, never was there not a covenant. Never was there not a temple. And that is really important because you're seeing covenant... And the, divi- the church as defined by divine law, what we're going to call geodivinoclesiology, as interdependent with the church defined as the presence of God and the power of that presence, which is on earth. And that's the language of on earth is in heaven, by the way, that you saw in that passage. There is a genuine presence of God 
on earth because of this church. Follow up. Yeah, so I guess I'm wondering why why is Jesus spending time explaining this to disciples who are part of the temple culture and I don't hear him explaining as much as declaring it. I think he's saying, in other words, a lot of these images, he, I'm, I'm kind of surprised. I mean, if I'm teaching this passage to you today like I did, I'm not going to throw out things like binding and loosening without telling you what they mean. I'm not going to throw out things like keys without telling you what they mean. In fact, I'm not even going to use the word church without telling you what it means. He just assumes they know all that. There's a lot of assumption here that we have to go back and revisit in terms of what, what was the context of Judaism that when they say these sorts of things, they immediately have a picture in their head of what he's talking about. Uh, the Sanhedrin, by the time you get to post-biblical Judaism in the New Testament, consisted of guests, priests, and elders. Yeah, sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so, you know, you're going to, no, we don't, you know, we're going to talk about the priest language later. We won't get into that now. But the point is, is you see a very similar, so they would have heard that, that Matthew 18 passage without a doubt as speaking to the church acting under its, it's like when, when in a court system today in America, um, who, you know, when, when you go to court, who's acting? Well, it's either a state court, I guess, or a, or a federal court, but it's a court, it's a, it's the United States of America's acting. But I don't go take them out into the public square. You know, I mean, this is kind of commonsensical, and it was just as much for them. You know, you know, if you're thinking about this person who's in sin and needs to be governed and brought into a court context where they have rights of, of being judged as to whether they were in or out and all that other stuff, my guess is we wouldn't typically think of going over to town green, inviting the whole city into it, and say, hey, let's have a, a citywide congregational meeting here, and let's talk about this. No, the city has appointed representatives to do that work for them. That's, that would have all been clearly understood, I think, in Matthew 18 by its original readers. And, and it is very clearly... I have a Bible study that will show you that. It will actually link it in Scripture. So I just can't do it now. Anything else? Well, finally, now that you've gotten this amazing picture of the church, its mission is to bring the nations under the rule of Christ for His glory... Its activity is binding and loosing, exercising Christ's government in a manner to both bless and to curse when necessary for the glory of Christ. Um, Its uh, power is undefeatable, eventually. And now we come to this class. Now, what does this require? And there's the paradigm shift. I tell you what it requires. Doesn't it mean uh, going? Around, let's, let's let's get some celebrity Christians and let's let's put them in a boardroom and let them become a board of directors. I think that's a great idea. Don't you think that's a great idea? You know, the guys that get the most money and prestige and wealth and all of that. That would be a great thing to do, don't you think? Oh boy, this is the paradigm. This is the bombshell. Not not only for the disciples, but for you. They were thinking what. And you kind of picked, picked on that. You know, somewhere around now, I'm seeing these great miracles and the binding and loosing of Satan and power. And woohoo, man, I want to be on the right-hand side of this guy. We're going for glory, baby. We're going for power. And all of a sudden he says, boys, let me tell you how this kingdom comes. It's going to come by me being a, a, a suffering servant, a doulos. 
It's going to become by those who would follow after me, who are willing to accept the call to take up my cross and bear it yourself. Someone read that passage, that, that, if you could just isolate that passage where he says it. Yeah. If anyone would come after me, let him die himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? But some man is going to come with his angels and employ his father, and he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not take death until they see the Son of Man coming in his Amen. Thank you. So many of you in this room are here, and God may be calling you to be a governor in the church, or others to assist those governors in the several capacities. Now, we're going to distinguish that, for instance, with the session acting jointly and the session acting severally, as also assisted by those whom God has called to help the session act severally, not jointly. Uh, i.e., we have WLB members, and we're going to talk about that out of Titus chapter 2 later, and how they are viewed as elder women in the church participating in this several activity of binding and loosing, even as in, in assistance to the church acting jointly by virtue of its representative elders. Um, and what's really important is this is not for anyone who's not willing to hear that call. I mean, think about the things you're willing to suffer for. Would you suffer for your children and stay up late at night for them? Would you suffer for your, for your, your career and stay up late at night for them? Would you suffer for, you know, the entertainment of a, of a great concert and drive all hours of the night and come back at 2 in the morning from New York City? Uh, and that's just one, suffering. Would you suffer uh, not always being popular? Would you suffer? I mean, think about Jesus Christ. The inconveniences of his life. Think about Jesus Christ. The absolute hostility that met him in his life. The betrayal that he encountered in his life. Betrayal by those who were close to him. It must have broken his heart. I know it broke his heart. For Judas to betray him. It broke his heart. You know, don't... I would rather have, you know, we would rather have, the Jesus evidently would rather have two elders rather than ten, most of which are not truly intentional about this call. It's how it happens. And women as well. It's going to happen. You know, it's uh, uh, it's going to happen to all Christians, but the context here is pretty clear that Jesus is not only talking to the whole church who's going to bear the cross of Jesus Christ in the world and in culture, and there's a certain sense in which, in a several sense, that's true, but here, this big bombshell is how Jesus chose to call his disciples to become governors. This is, that's the beginning, what, what was happening here? And what was happening here in Matthew, this is the way Matthew extends a call. To be one of his apostolic uh, soldiers. 
apostles being uh, the foundation of the church, the very foundational authority of the church. And for them, it wasn't a celebrated position. Did he say? You get, what did he say? Not only are you going to share in the sufferings of Christ, think about his sufferings, I just did, but you're going to have to come across as lower. I mean, you're, you're not going to be celebrated. You're not going to be, uh, you're going to decrease in this world because of it. Somehow. You're, he says you might, and we look at that and, and we put it into poetry. This isn't poetry here. <laughs> it's meant to kind of go, ooh, wow, that's, that's cool, you know, the stuff we write a movie about. It's getting kind of ugly now when he says, what, you must, de- what's the language? The least, you're going to be least. Loses his life. Loot. Yeah. The whole man, the whole world. Yeah. I mean, you know, we will celebrate this in heaven, but the world probably won't celebrate it very much because it'll feel foolish. Well, so I hope that you're getting, this is meant to introduce the whole, we, we have 13 meetings. Not enough. Not even close to enough. But it's a start. And then, of course, we continue to, you know, continuing education will go on for the rest of our life. But in 13 minutes, we're going to try to address, this passage is going to be looming over everything we talk about. We're going to try to probe and consider all the various aspects of what does it mean to receive the call to take up our cross and follow after Christ in the governing work of the church because we believe the church now is infinitely greater than a mere voluntary association of believers we actually believe it to be the very epicenter of the rule of God in this world a rule that can just infinitely bless people infinitely bless people because his rule is good and gracious and merciful. But a rule to not have in your life is to by default be cursed under your self-rule, which is to infinitely curse yourself. And that's what this, I just don't know how to put this into words. And what would you be willing to suffer to be part of that? In my better moments, I, I want to say, and I think we can pray God to help us say, I will suffer anything. My reward will be in heaven. But I will suffer anything. So with that, I'd like to uh, open up uh, for prayer. And let's just, many of us, consecrate, if you would, help me, but let's consecrate this, uh, this, these hours and these days to God and ask His help, not only to teach us, but to... Make us new people because of this training. And, and, ex- and, and changing our hearts and our manners and our way of thinking about the church, our way of thinking about leadership in the church. So would you all help me and let's pray to God. I'll close this in a minute.
Lord, that you have created. I ask, Father, that you would um, help us to truly find delight in looking at your word together and understanding the, the purposes of the church and the kingdom that you've created. Pray, Lord, that you would open our minds and help us to uh, let go of some of the preconceptions that we all have and the things that have kind of warped and twisted how we think about the church and its role. And pray, Lord, that we would um, be humble, um, willing to learn, willing to struggle through things together. Um, Lord, and that you would just give us a grand view of the power of your kingdom, that, Lord, we would be willing to sacrifice, that we would um, desire to seek your kingdom first in everything. Lord, that you would knit us together even as a, a local church and that, that we would be stronger because of the time that we spend in training. Julie, thank you so much for um, the attention and care of our church to bring us together in this way. It's such a gift to be able to take this time to to share and to grow with one another. And Lord, I ask that this be a time of not only renewal, but transformation in our hearts and our bodies and actions and everything that we do in our lives, Lord, that we are touched in some way by what can transpire during this time.
to his faith to see it work. Father, I pray for us as we learn and as we commit to these next weeks of training that you would uh, increase in us a love for your church and a love for the power that is here, but we recognize it is in that there is um, there will be spiritual warfare. Um, help us to be aware of the ways in which the devil will attack us to keep us from learning these powerful truths about mm. what it is so uh, scary a thing to, to the powers of hell. We need be able to guard our time and our hearts against things that would pull us away and uh, allow us to devote the time to learn with one another about the kingdom. Father, we pray that you would humble us and that we would not be tempted to be puffed up in knowledge or glory or success or look well in the world, Lord, that we would do only to take us across such an incredible grace to be a part of your church and to be known by you. And uh, to think to become a part of your leadership is, is uh, even more humbling. So we pray that we would be known as those who are willing to die. So we do all things for your sake. Father, we do thank you for not leaving us on earth without your presence, the presence that you bring to us both or all through your prophet and your priest and your kingly activities. We thank you, Lord, for your kingdom. We pray, Lord, all of us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know, Lord, that in heaven that will be fulfilled, that earth will be transformed by the power of Jesus Christ to become our, our heaven. 
And we pray, Father, for the noble dream that you've implanted in our hearts this morning. For that kingdom, even now, to come mediated, perhaps in small, less large steps at times, but that the kingdom is marching, the kingdom is increasing, that a great army you have brought together to destroy the strongholds that bind under Satan's rule uh, those who are in this world. And we pray, Father, for their, your binding and loosing of the rule of Jesus Christ in our world. We pray for a resurgence in our belief and our conviction of the Church of Jesus Christ being the very real presence of Christ mediated in the mystery of that union with those whom you have called to be your saints and to be your officers wherein you are in the midst of us even when two or more when a quorum is established according to the laws of God to think that you are with us ratifying the activity that is done insofar as its activity that is under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, give us such a beatific vision of this church that we might be emboldened to, to suffer for it, uh, to give our life to it, and for its well-being. Uh, for the church is the very epicenter insofar as it is under her only head and king, Jesus Christ. And we pray towards that end that Christ would be, therefore, our only head and king in the way in which we continue um, our activities together. As has been prayed, that we would be here to submit to your scripture whatever it would tell us. Help us to understand it rightly. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Give you a break in about five minutes, but just with that, I'd like to at least introduce the course to you. If you turn, open up your books. Um, very briefly, I won't spend much time here. You're all very intelligent people. The whole course, as you know, has been placed into CCB. Annie has provided for you a little cheat sheet if you need it into how to access CCB and get access to all the materials, all the PowerPoints. What we do here, for the most part, will be put on this uh, in this database, and you'll have access to it. And you can go home. You can review it. You can. It'll help you maybe as you take notes to think of taking notes and things that aren't necessarily on the PowerPoint because you know you have access to that. You can now start dribbling things that you're learning more personally and trying to just uh, just get the curriculum down. Um, we'll give you handouts. It's going to be voluminous. Um, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I think uh, it seems like some, I don't know, I hope that you, you're excited about the volume. Um, uh, I say that because for me, in the way I approach this, I'll, I like having resources that I can research. Um, and so, sure, you're not going to, don't feel bad that, you know, you get something, a, a, I don't know, big handout or something, and it's a lot of stuff. But one day, you're going to want to go back to it, and it's going to become a resource. So I, I, a lot of what we're giving to you are things that hopefully you can resource in your uh, development going forward as a leader. Um, and so we'll try to get you some materials. But not, but most of them, are, all of them just about, with a few exceptions, are going to be given digitally. So you'll have to decide. Do you want to print them out? You can do that. And put them in your notebook. Uh, or you cannot. Um, you can use your iPad or your computer or whatever you want to bring. 
Um, most of the books, you can, you can, if you want to order them, you may. Um, but we're going to give them to you usually digitally. There, I would recommend that you purchase the book, Whitmer, uh, The Shepherd Leader. Um, another book you want to purchase is Tim Keller's Center Church. That will come up. Um, there are a few other books that I would love to have you purchase as well, just for your resources. James Bannerman's two-volume is is worthy of purchase. Uh, it's hard to find it cheap. Um, sometimes you can if you go and look for it. It's, it's beginning a resurgence. I use this book in my ecclesiology course at Gordon-Conwell, and um, I I'd love to claim that I got it back into the into the world, but I think that would be a little bit hubris of me. But um, it is interesting that you know about ten years or fifteen twenty years ago I started using it, or fifteen years ago, and it's really starting to come back. And it really is probably the best one or two volume ecclesiology I can point to. Um, uh, the Church of Christ. Uh, you have some readings next week from it, which will be included in your... But we will put his readings in, the, in there. We're not asking you to read a lot of it, um, only portions of it, but um, I can think of some others. You'll, you'll see some other selections here, and you'll say, God, I wish I could read all of it. Well, go get it. That'd be great. Um, look very briefly at the syllabus. I, I want to... Uh, it is incomplete, uh, though it's, it's not categorically incomplete. It is complete categorically. But we've got a year here, and I'm hoping I'm going to learn a few things in a year, and I might be bringing some stuff to you that I've learned. And so I uh, also want to include, incorporate the other pastors. We're going to have a collaborative. I put this together more or less to get us started, but we're going to continue to collaborate and, and, um, and develop this in, in ways that will hopefully increase. You can be assured, though, that, that we won't, uh, you know, that we're going to be advanced enough to where the next month you're going to know precisely what you need to do. So uh, hopefully, unless... Well, I'm going to always, I'm going to always here, as you know, have the right to change a little bit. Um, but, uh, but anyway, hopefully it's pretty settled. I mean, a lot of work has gone into it, so it certainly isn't serendipitous. Um, with that being said, here you'll notice there's some some kind of major sections. Section one really is the role of the shepherd leader in the context of church polity. Uh, the issue. We're next week, for instance, we're going to go right to the jugular on the issue. I mean, we just define the church as an epicenter of power. Now, that raises huge questions as to the nature, extent, and limit of church power. What is church power? How do we define its limits and extents? And you're going to get into 19th century, reformational, Calvinistic kinds of stuff uh, to help you think about that. Um, James Bannerman particularly. So you'll notice next week the nature, extent, and limits of church power. Next month. Actually, um, if you look on the back, you have uh, exactly when the dates are, and you have the topics. So you know when they are. Um, the, uh, and then you work through it. The next one, church polity, gets to the aspect of, okay, what, was, what is the design of government? The first is, what's the nature of power that is governing? The second is, the church polity itself, what's, what's the design of that power? Um, what we're going to get into the issues of, of denominate, you know, different uh, uh, church uh, denom- denominational structure. There, obviously, we're going to just buy a shoe for the Presbyterian f- uh, way of understanding that. Um, we're going to act within those clothes. Now, always, 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 you know, this can become a lot of this material is born out of controversy and polemics. You'll feel some of that in these writings. And I hope you know that the posture of this church is not polemical against other churches. I mean, at some point, you sit down, you, you open the scriptures, and you debate. All right? Let's duke it out. 
You know, are we hierarchical? Are we representational? You know, what do we do here? But never, ever should you hear a tone, hopefully from me, and our in our community here that views those other uh, communions as somehow apostate or any of that. I mean, when we get into ecumenism, which is one of our last things, you'll see that we think denominationalism is a really good thing because it is ecumenical. It's not imperial. It allows for really genuine freedom of conscience in a manner where we can be both and at the same time confessional and unified. And so we, we cherish that, this side of heaven, that none of us have an, an angle on truth. Uh, a particular angle, I mean, a, a unique angle, if you will, or corner on truth, and therefore we're going to go to the scriptures and duke some stuff out. But, but at the end, and we're going to then be set free to live according to our conscience about what we think the scriptures principally teach each one of us. But don't ever confuse that. You know, it's, it's kind of like to me the way I like to think of it is, you know, uh, me and my brother fought quite a bit, but boy, you just don't even get near fighting somebody outside fighting my brother and vice versa, man, you, you just get wrath all over the place. And that's the way I feel about other denominations. They're my brothers, you know, and we're going to have a little dukes duking it out every once in a while, but don't confuse the fact that we have a little tiffle here that, uh, man, we're, we're not going to, to battle for you. You know, and so that's the spirit of that. But we'll get into church polity. Um, and in that, we'll do, address some issues. What are the offices in the church? Uh, women in ministry and offices, we'll get to that issue. The discipline then in the governance of the church. This gets into the whole issue of the shepherd. So you'll notice this week we started with the shepherd leader. Next week we're going to take an excursus, if you will, from the shepherd leader, and we're going to look at the issue of church power. Then we're going to come back to the the shepherd leader with chapter 4, and then we're going to look at Daniel Ray's biblical church discipline, just trying to get our handle around what is it, how, how do you do it, that kind of thing. Um, throughout this process, make sure you notice, especially those who are interested in being an officer in the church, particularly um, uh, whether WLB or whatever, but all of you should do it. Notice BOCO, if you're, if you're new to that language, Book of Church Order, uh, the Presbyterian Book of Church Order, and then West WLC, Westminster Larger Catechism, or, or WCF, Westminster Confession of Faith, little acronyms there. Um, but I will give you those because every week we're going to locate what we're saying in the context of uh, our our consensus. Um, and so I want to. So partly, what's going to be happening is you're going to be trained in the documents of our church in terms of Book of Church Order and Westminster. But but the spirit of it will be to learn from Scripture, of course. And on it goes. The duties of elders and assisting elder women as shepherd leaders, and you'll see that in, in Boko. You'll see Samuel Miller, chapter one. And then you'll see Timothy Whitner, uh, chapter 5 through 9. That's part 1. And then what we do is we turn to part 2, and we start exploring various areas of ministry that this government, this power, is going to be engaged with. And it goes, it ranges from life on life, discipleship and late counseling, training, to uh, understanding our spirituality and, and uh, addressing each aspect, missional, communal, you know, etc., uh, you can see it there. I won't go through it. Um, issue, then, then we go to issues in ministry, uh, like the issue of conversion. Uh, how do we understand conversion? How do we understand the relationship to our polity? What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? And how does it fit into our conversion uh, story? Uh, things that can tend to be controversial, marriage and divorce, gender and sexuality, cultural engagement. These are all sorts of things we'll address that we see as the kind of things you'll have to address as a session or as a WLB or as a, a key leader in our church. 
Um, we'll review some policies uh, of the session so you'll get in, involved with that. Oh, okay, that's how we view blank. Uh, it might force our session to go back and look at these things before I get to it, by the way, because some of them are a little old and we might want to review it. But these are on the books is what we've ruled on so far. Um, issues in confessional theology, I just mentioned, I, now you can see it's starting to get incomplete. Uh, but what we'll do there is particularly focus in on some of the teachings of, of our tradition that people tend to struggle with initially. And we'll try to talk through some of those, but it'll be like a almost like a helping each other. How do you approach this issue? How do you approach this question um, kind of thing? Getting very practical. Issues in biblical unity and ecumenism. Uh, and then there gonna be a, there's going to be a Q&A. A uh, whole lesson is going to be probably needed where we, oh, we needed to spend a little time on this, we need to spend a little time on that, and we'll do that in the Q&A. And then finally, 13, we'll look at the whole issue of, for those who are interested in, in, in considering this now or later, you know, what is ordination uh, and, care, and, and, the, and look at some of those issues there. So, any questions about the course? Yeah. You said that all again from the beginning. <laughs> Absolutely. Turn to page one, and uh, you'll notice that the course has been put together. Smart Ellen. Yeah. I'm just wondering. Uh, obviously, we try to make all the sessions. If we have to skip, the, I mean, if, we, if we're unable to come to a session, yeah. how should we, you know, like get caught up? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, so I'm going to pass around. We do want attendance. The reason why is this course is a requisite for you to be an elder or WLB member. Um, uh, there are a couple of portions which I'll clear on that if you're WLB, you don't have to, to do it, but um, I'd encourage you to do all of it. It's almost impossible to divorce it all because everything you're doing is related to it. Um, but we'll get there later. Uh, so give us your attendance. You may, if your name's not there, put it on there. If you can't make it, uh, we understand that might happen every once in a while, maybe. <laughs> um, we are taping it. Uh, as you're going to see, it's a readings course. Um, and a lot of the content of this course is going to be in roundtable conversations. You're going to miss that uh, if you miss this. Uh, but, you know, we'll do the best we can. You might meet with one of the pastors to, to debrief the, this if, uh, if that's, you know, we might want to do that depending on the subject matter, especially some of these are more, I think, uh, difficult than others, and we'll do that. But, um, but yeah, that do the best you can. We'll see where it falls out. Um, if at all possible, just go ahead and you look at your calendar and try to put them in there and see if you can work around it. But, yeah, I, I don't know if that happens. But everything, everything's on CCB, we'll the materials, record. everything. It's not the same, but we're recording with you online. <laughs> I don't know. I doubt it. Uh, the, we're, we, we actually did talk about that. Um, this is not the kind of thing I want public, um, just because it could be mis. It'd be like uh, I think this is a classic example of, of Hebrews and choking people with meat when they need milk. Uh, you just need to have a context for some of this stuff, or it could just come off cross weird. Um, so probably not. It's it's uh, and it really isn't a course that's meant to be taken in abstentia. It just really isn't. So. We probably want that interaction. Oh, okay, you need this. Why don't you listen to this? We'll give you the, and here's some things that we'd want you. So it, it makes you come to us, and we'll be able to say, okay, here's some things that you want to make sure you look at that we talked about, kind of thing. So we can help direct your, your lead doing it where you're not just doing it anonymously. Okay? Yeah. Just mechanics, Preston. Um, it sounds like the um, Whitmer book and the uh, Keller book are the two main books. 
Well, yeah, I mean, th- you'll be reading a lot more stuff out of a lot other many other things. So don't get the impression that if you read those two books, you had either a third of this course. You haven't. But in terms of the ones we'll do in large volume, yes. Is it okay if we're passing this around, if we might get a group order on books just so we get them and get it done? And well, you could, but I, I, I think, honestly, it'd be quicker for you to just go on Amazon and get next-day delivery. As my, I mean, whatever you think. I don't know that we'd get a discount for you. I, I, you know, and plus, to do that, many of you are going to want a, um, a iPad, you know, a, a digital copy for your iPads. Many of you are going to want hard copies. So it'd be kind of, if it's all right. I mean, I don't know that we help you much. I think it's gets more confusing. Honestly, it's my if opinion. you order it from a place like a Christian book house from a church, they will often give you a discount, yeah. which is what she's talking yeah, about. Well, if anybody wants to research that and let us know, um, you, you can do that. If you'd like to, you have the the group. Talk to each other. By the way, this is good. We, you got a little thing there. If any of you find any of these books, I mean, I, I'm just holding back, man. There are some books I would love to have you buy here. And, um, you know, uh, I'll do my best to encourage it, maybe. Uh, it, it, this, this bibliography is not really a bibliography. It's a, there's so many good books that I'll be bringing to you that say, hey, if you could go back and get this, that'd be great. Um, but, yeah, let's, let's just talk to each other. But we, don't, I'm, we are trying to really not bottleneck this. Uh, I mean, we got quite a lot on our plate as it is, and, and so just the more we can help each other as a, as a community, it's not hard. You know, just really, we got to get into the 21st century, right? And it's not hard to just digitalize and talk to each other and say, hey, I found a bunch of these books on X place and let people know about it, and everybody gets to go and find it and bring it to themselves. All right? I'm trying to take busy work out of your life. Somebody would have to be in charge of all that kind of stuff. There's a website called <laughs> <laughs> And they often will have used, and they'll often have uh, these distributors that they use that are cheaper, as you know, and so uh, off-site trailers, all that stuff. Anybody else? Okay, I want to give you about a 10-minute break, um, and uh, when we come back, we're going to look at the... Uh, I was going to do the Whitmer first, but it feels like the Keller article would be best first because it kind of feels like what we just did. So come back. Be, be prepared as a small group. I'm going to put some questions up on the board. We are not going to have the time to kind of be a big, long teaching on this stuff. So, uh, so what I want you to do is you're going to be teaching yourselves with the readings, and I'm going to make sure that you get at least some of those readings what you need to. But it's a readings course that you're helping each other with. So, and then we'll share a little bit, and then we'll go to the next topic. And then you're going to break up into small groups again. So a lot of interaction. Three questions on chapter one. You know, just generally, you might want to start with a, what, hey, anybody have anything generally they'd like to share about this chapter? Um, clearly, uh, Whitmer is, is, gonna, is making a case for the paradigm of shepherd as the predominant biblical paradigm for leadership. Um, I think he's, there are many other paradigms or metaphors for spiritual leadership, to be sure. Um, and we could look at those, but I do think it's one of the most prominent, and I, and I think he's right. Um, clearly, we will be brought to the passage of First Peter, shepherd the flock of God. Uh, I think of the admonition to Peter in the Gospels. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Um, I am the great shepherd. I mean, you clearly see that paradigm. So hopefully you'll just, and, and we don't need to spend a lot of time here and just making sure you're, I'm letting the church be your, I mean, the uh, book be your teacher. I'm not going to try to, I do have a handout on this that will point out, hopefully give you a nice, concise trajectory of biblical history. 
But so let's just get started. Um, with no more further ado, uh, make sure you're all filled in a table. And um, I'm going to kind of give you probably look at about I don't know about 10, maybe 15 minutes for each chapter, which would take us a total of 45 minutes. So 10, maybe 15, then we'll come together. Um, with the killer thing, I think I'll do that at the very end, and we may not do it as a small group. That's fine. Um, I think he has really one main point, and then he has a few other sub points, so I don't think it's going to be that much. So have at it. Enjoy. Did everybody get the clipboard? Keep the clipboard going. If anybody has not signed it, you're responsible. Get make sure you do. Here it is right here. Anybody need it? Yes. Here you go. No. There we go. Thank you. Move this. Oh, yeah. Anywhere. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish I'd done that for the whole thing. It was fine before. but I can't read Yeah. Is that good? Does that work? For me, Okay, get started. Ten minutes, each chapter. I'll, I'll time and I'll move it on. If you would take your notebooks out and turn to the handout um, that that I have, you you're actually this is really kind of uh, awkwardly vulnerable. I'm actually letting you see what I see when I'm preaching, and you can see how uh, you know well whatever you you can make whatever judgments you want. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's it's how I think at least. But uh, uh, but it, it, this, so this this is sort of a handout from the sermon that I gave not long ago, actually, so I'm not going to be reviewing this that much. It just I just thought it would be helpful because it puts in, in writing uh, a, a biblical historical survey for you of the shepherding ministry and where it all goes. So I'm not going to cover all this, but just to kind of get you started, um, and then what I'm going to do is have each of your, your groups share. But... Let me just read this. Uh, I mean, I, I didn't write this to be read, so I'm not sure if it was. it's going to be a good read, um, but I'll just kind of read it. When we, So step back now and think about what we just did, what we just talked about, and I want to kind of fast forward and put it in perspective here. One, one can hardly read about Paul's first preaching tour in Asia Minor without being thrilled at the introduction and success of the gospel among the nations of that region. Um, H. Leo Bowles estimates that Paul traveled 1,208 miles this was uh, a long journey for that time with the ancient modes of travel. Bowles adds, Paul and Barnabas had traveled the 1,208 miles and had established more than half a dozen churches within the two or three years that they were gone on this journey. Um, so when you read the story, uh, you're, you're, you're met with this sort of feeling of impressiveness. You know, wow, what an amazing missionary endeavor that we see Paul on. And typically, how we, in modern missional way of thinking, what are we impressed about? Uh, we're impressed with the efforts and sacrifices of Paul and Barnabas to get to the gospel uh, to the lost. Um, you could hear this being the topic of a great Urbana you know, uh, missions conference. Uh, we're impressed with the persecutions for the gospel's sake. And you could hear uh, a nice hagiography of, 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 of Paul here. And, you know, wow, what a, what a man, uh, what a great man of God it is. he was. And what he suffered for the gospel. And certainly we do see in this story uh, the story, the, I mean, you know, if you fast forward from Matthew 16 and what Christ promised would be true for those apostles, yep, yeah, it's happening everywhere the advance of the kingdom of God is going in missions. 
people suffer for it. I mean, you just don't see the picture of non-suffering kingdom building. You just don't. And I can't reiterate this enough because I think we live in an age that has a deep aversion to inconvenience and suffering. Deep aversion. As if it's almost wrong biblically. And so you just, you've just got to be impressed with that, right? Uh, we are impressed with their successes and failures even. I mean, we, we will be impressed with the fact that sometimes it seemed to work and sometimes it didn't work. Sometimes he's thrown out and sometimes the church is born. Uh, we are impressed with the reactions to their preaching, ranging from wholehearted acceptance to outright violence. So these are the things that we typically make note of. And they're all there, and we should. But we are, uh, but, but are we impressed with how Acts is impressed? For Acts, um, do we even notice that the sum value of their work, what was accomplished... It's said in terms of church planning, if you will, especially in the appointment of elders. Um, Acts 14, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must endure the kingdom of God. There it is again. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, then they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When were they finished? It was not until we'd call it church organization. That's that's what we call that. That's just the way it's come down. But it's it's really not done until there are shepherds. Shepherds who've been ordained and appointed as authorized from the Apostolic Foundation. You're not through as a missionary with this kind of notion. Um, there are lots of implications, and, and I, there's a lot more biblical data here. The, I, I've said it, I think, publicly in sermons before, but, but as I think it was about a couple of weeks ago that I did this, uh, that Acts is divided into three histories, basically, based on Acts 1.8. And each of those histories, the summation is, and the churches were strengthened. In other words, it's not a summation of how many people got saved. It's that in each of these reasons, there was a gospel-centered accessibility. That there was an accessibility to Christ's presence in the gospel by the virtue of church planting. Church planting was central. And now, are you surprised? I mean, they're just doing what Matthew 16 and Christ told his disciples to do. They're just emphasizing what he emphasized. It's amazing to me in the modern missions how we read Acts with our lens of individualism and our lens of individual conversionism and all of this other stuff, which is important. Don't get me wrong, it's there. But what you see in Acts is the church planting, churches being strengthened, elders being appointed. I mean, you think about a little microcosm of Acts. Remember how Titus, what's the purpose? Anybody want to tell me the purpose of Titus? Um, I think it's Titus 1.5 is where you'll get it. The very purpose of the book of Titus. Why did God send Titus to Crete? To set in order and to appoint elders. In other words, bro, we got to get you over there because they don't have, they're without shepherds. They're without shepherds. And then you have that. You have the same instructions to Timothy, the church planter under the apostolic. So you see Paul making this the aim of his ministry to appoint shepherds in every city, wherein the church is, is now a church under the governance of God as by the apostolic foundation you have now Paul not only doing it himself this is the point of Acts 14 but in his epistles to his young pastor protégés 
he, he frames their mission in terms of, of that, of preaching the gospel to be sure, of disturb, you know, binding and loosing, separating the true from the false and the doctrines, etc., preserving the faith, guarding the faith, as he talks about in Timothy. But each one of them, he gives very precise instructions about appointing pastors and, and elders, or, or shepherds, I'll call them, presbyters. And that's chapter 3, and we'll get into all the vernacular of that. So, just, just I think to kind of get you thinking about, you know, how um, what you just read is, I think, especially chapters 1 and 2, and then 3 just shows you the way the church has been struggling to, to define this in terms of specific offices, etc., which we'll come back to in, a couple, in two sessions from now. But I hope that you were impressed a little bit with just, God, it really is in the Bible. <laughs> I mean, that's really what I wanted you to see. It really is in the Bible as, and I don't want to start talking about it because I want you to. Um, so, with that little introduction, um, let's just open it up. And what I'd like to do is we'll just go for each chapter. You don't need to be exhausted. We, we do have other, another whole segment here to do. Uh, so, but just sh- if someone on your table could summarize what you thought were the more, you know, you know what you think was you know, helpful, helpful thoughts that you had as you interacted with these chapters, okay? So let's just start with chapter 1. Um, and you don't have to go through each question. Don't, don't do that, okay? Don't go, okay, question 1, we thought. Question 2, we thought. Just in your mind, synthesizing, tell me what kind of stuck out at you. Who would like to start? Y'all want to just go around like this so we don't have to keep waiting for each other to start? So we'll start with this table here. Uh, chapter 1, general reflections. Who will speak for the group? Everybody right now look at each other and point who you want to speak so we won't do this. Okay, we got a speaker and everyone. Really? You want to? Oh, okay, go ahead. Okay, everybody listen up. Speak loud. Recognize the distinction that, that he made early on that, between father and shepherd, mm. um, and talked about that a little bit. That uh, the father um, image or, or uh, you know, portrayal uh, is something that's more of a temporary nature, and so he he was the, well, the shepherd was uh, a more permanent thing. And you know, she'd never outgrew the he didn't know that sort of thing. Mm. So it was a better uh, better. And you can kind of hear a little jab, I'm sure, with that that statement. But you know, I'm the, that's the cynic in me. He's obviously wanting the shepherd bishop language to prevail over father uh, in the pastoral ministry. But yeah. And then the um, the image of the false shepherds feeding themselves and feeding on the flock, uh, and, uh, but it, but it's actually. Sacrifice. Mm. Sacrifice. Okay. Anything else? Others will supplement you. You don't have to say it all. Anything else that came out prominently in your discussion? Well, it was the issue of um, the, the kind of bullies. Uh, if you don't have good shepherds, uh, what comes out is yeah. other other strong personalities fill in the gap. And, uh, and we'll do oh God, that is so true. <laughs> I just cannot tell you. Now leadership abhors a vacuum. And when you have weak shepherds, strong anti-Christ shepherds will just pile right in. Boy, is that true. It's not for the wimps. 
Okay, this one. Uh, we've talked about how shepherding isn't merely a pastoral concept, but a redemptive one. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you mean by that? That uh, shepherding is in the context context of saving people. Versus, what's the pastoral doing? Just taking care of them, making sure they're okay. So sort of a managing. I'm trying. That, that strikes me as interesting. There. So the difference between sort of what would be negative about taking care of people and feeding them and. Well, the shepherding. So I'm not what you mean. Shepherding is redemptive. Um, yeah, which is discussed on page twelve. Right. Is um, this is going to salvation of the church? Yeah. So his point there is good. That's what it really means to be a shepherd. So this isn't, I think his point there is it's not a secondary calling. I mean, this is about life and death, salvation here. Good. Um, And so we had not really encountered, we we hadn't seen or looked at people like David as a shepherd, tended to view him as a king. Um, And so it was interesting to try and view some of these great church fathers Mm -hmm. as shepherds ultimately as failed shepherds um, pointing to who would be the good shepherd. Very good. Okay. Anything else from that group? Major things? We also talked about the vacuum concept. Okay. Good. How about that group, chapter one? In the back. Um, Well, a lot of what's what's in cell writing, but um, just that, that deep understanding that, of course, you mentioned earlier that the first uh, readers of this would have understood completely, but we have to go back and understand what Shepherd really is. Um, but it is that uh, permanent position, again, which was mentioned already, um, different from uh, father, son, parent. Um, but that, that Shepherd is um, interested in those positive things as building up, the feeding, the caring, as opposed to the false shepherds of um, you know, self, uh, self-reliance, um, leaving them to their own uh, game. Uh, the shepherd isn't. Um, uh, God is the one who draws them there. The shepherd does the caring for them. Mirroring mm. really that that true shepherd, mm. not um, trying to take that in of, of ourselves. So it's a, it's a it's a relief in some regards that we're not to to be that uh, that smartest guy in the room, but we're to mirror that. Care and feeding of, of a true shepherd. Good. You know, that, that, that point I was going to summarize. Well, I will summarize it in a minute. I'll, I'll leave it. Anything else in that group? I just really stress under shepherds are sheep, the one shepherd. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. This is chapter one still. How about you guys? Um, both of some of the things that are mentioned already, but uh, we focused a lot of time on. Calling of like, just how important it is to be a good shepherd and what happens when you're not in terms of the, the judgment of God on you. When you, when you, when you do eat the fat, that can wind up, mm-hmm. you know, you set yourself up above the flock, just how God will just come down hard on you. What were some of the uh, characteristics of a bad shepherd then? Kind of, maybe we could, I'll just piggyback a little bit with that, and anybody can jump in, but. Bad shepherds were characterized with what, generally? Selfish. Selfish. Self-interest. Sort of gain. Anything else? Easy pass, kiss, get 
Okay, good. Failing to realize that God is the true shepherd, the way Moses um, botched. Yeah. Everything couldn't enter the land. Okay, yeah. Didn't protect. Scattered. Neglect the sheep. They neglect. They were absentee. Neglection. Huh? They didn't bind up the wounded. Didn't bind up the wounded. Didn't care for those who were hurting. Lost track of what it meant to be faithful. Like what was was God calling them to do with their role? Yes. What might they achieve with it in their own mind of what was God? This is. This is. You know, these are see some harsh indictments, and yet so easy to happen, very subtly. I don't remember which, if it was from this or something else that I was reading recently too, but the uh, combining of the wounds lightly, like taking it as if there's just a little bit that needs to be fixed when there was a major mm-hmm. problem. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, how about this group? What do you mean to... Last group, chapter one, who's talking? Well, we said uh, many of the same things that were done in there. We talked, did talk about the duties of a shepherd in terms of protection and feeding and care and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, I forgot now what, what else did we say? Now, we're well aligned. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting about, so if, you know, just to, just, it's interesting to put some of this together. We'll get to chapter three in a minute, but it strikes me. One of the things I did in my doctoral studies is looked at the early uh, theologies of pastoral care. Um, You know, the first one was, I think, Gregory of Nancy, who wrote it. And one of the consistent themes you see in these early theologies of pastoral ministry, uh, those who are, what is a theology of the pastor, if you will? And I just mean, it was, I was focusing on the pastor at the time, but it, it applies to this as well. Is um, over and over again, the struggle to, and I see it in chapter 3, the struggle, when you consider what is expected of the shepherding ministry, um, there is a reciprocal response to that, which is it's impossible. There's a sense in which you begin to get very exasperated by these things. I mean, just listen to what you're saying. The effect it has upon me is very visceral. I mean, I just, you know, I just there's this kind of, God, I mean, I'm just getting pulled all over the place here, you know. And and so I, it really is not a very fun exercise when I start hearing this stuff for me a little bit, but and, and maybe for the session members too. And and what's really interesting to me is the way that that history you got to summarize in chapter 3, you could you could make a case that it's the history of redefining the pastoral ministry in order to accomplish it. I mean, there's a sense in which there is a temptation to do that. And, you, and so I'm wondering, instead of just embracing the impossibility and by God's grace doing the best you can, the other option is to Re, just to, you know, how could God possibly give us something that's impossible to do? Therefore, I must be reading the Bible wrong. Now let's go back and see if I can find a way to redefine pastor or redefine shepherd. And thus you get into the sacerdotal, where you know a shepherd is, you know, in the most crass sense, is a confessor or you know he's sitting behind a black screen, not having to engage the human being at all, other than to hear confession, pronounce absolution, and go. Go, go be a peach, you know, and and so it's interesting that that's happening. I mean, Gregory, I think it was, he, he left the ministry because he just was convinced he couldn't do it. 
And it took the whole congregation running after him to say, well, just do the best you can. Come back. <laughs> um, because he abandoned the post. And, uh, oh, God, you know, I get teary. I think about it. I know how that feels. And so there's a sense in which, uh, you know, when we get this issue of order is where I'm po- pointing to. This issue of a plurality is a, did you notice the theme of that that's going to come up? That becomes a very, very uh, important dynamic. When you go through chapter 1, you see the, 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 the ideal shepherd and God as being now mediated through under shepherds on earth, the binding and loosing. But then very, very quickly in redemptive history, you begin to see the plurality. Um, I want to take you to two passages before we move on to the next chapter that I think are very significant. One is in Numbers. And in Numbers chapter 27, um, and I'm just, you don't have to turn to it, it's in your notes, you can find it later. But verses 12, uh, I'm going to pick up at 15, it's really 12 through 23, but here's the gist of it. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come, to, come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep with no shepherd. Now that was Moses' prayer, and of course himself being appointed to be that shepherd. Okay? Fast forward, if you will, in history to Exodus chapter 18. Um, We have what amounts to a kind of ancient ordination service, where Moses sat as judge for the people while the people stood around him from morning until evening. Now things are getting a little overwhelming. Okay? He's, He's... He's, he's, a, he's dying here, okay? He's, there is so much need, so much hurt, so many distractions, so many schisms, so many problems. Um, and so Moses had judged for the people while the people stood in the evening, verse 13, assuming the importance of oversight, government, and the need for judgment. I'm just, this is me talking. With respect to do, disputes in their midst, Jethro's seasoned recommendation to Moses was as follows. You, present, you represent the people before God, and you should bring their cases before God. Teach them the statutes and instructions and make them known to them the way that they are to go and the things which they are to do. You should also look for able men among all the people, men who fear God, are trustworthy, and hate dishonest gain. Set such men over them as officers over thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Let them sit as judges for the people at all times. Let them bring every important case to you, but decide every minor case themselves so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. And see, that's, that's what I hear uh, this book making a case for. Don't get caught in all the particulars. The, the real issue here is the plurality uh, of, of the eldership. And the way in which, now we're going to get into that, and like I said, in session three, we're going to look at some of the, okay, how do we find that plurality? What, how do we define the offices in order to, but don't miss the bigger point, however we may differ on one, two, three office views. Um, I know they know, I know a very good friend who's a, a, now the Archbishop in America for the uh, Agna, and this is something I, he and I talked about three weeks ago. And I said, okay, Foley, you know, we, you know, how, how does your polity allow this to get shared? I mean, I, I, you're my friend. How are you not going to be Moses in a couple of years? Literally dying on the, on the thing, you know. And, and we talk about it. 
and we shared. I shared my Presbyterian way of which that might could, the principles of Presbyterian ways they may be implemented in, a, in a, an Episcopal system, and he certainly has some of that already in place in the in the College of, of Bishops and in the College of of all that. But so it's interesting that we're all struggling with that. All the denominations are struggling with it to some degree or another. But what we don't want to do, the reason I'm, this is my big point here, what we don't want to do is start redefining what a shepherd is supposed to do. Let's don't get so exasperated. And we all do it. We do it as Presbyterians, we do it as Baptists, we do it as Episcopalians, we do it as everybody. We don't want to start, that's to me what the Reformation was all about, is restoring the shepherding vision, even if that set up some pretty significant debates about, well then, okay, what are the offices? If you'll notice in Westminster, Westminster, our highest level consensus statement that we have in our tradition of the Scoto-American tradition, if you will, um, it doesn't define the number of offices. It just tells you there's got to be this stuff happening. They were very intentional about that. And then, American Presbyterianism took the second book of discipline the second book of discipline coming out of Scotland, as and that was the precursor to what we call the book of church order, much of the language. And we took a particular expression that was there in Scotland, almost uniquely, by the way, at the time, of how to order the offices in a manner that gets you this holistic shepherding vision. But it's really important for you to hear me say that the, don't miss the forest for the trees on this one. What I hear this argument, this book arguing for, and I'm to- totally sympathetic with it, is do not redefine shepherding in, because of its impossibility. Go deeper in Scripture to discern how has God distributed shepherding in a manner as to consist, and we do it here as you know. To me, this is a, one of the great calls for, say, the Titus two women. I mean, you just can't do this with a group of men only. You just can't do it. You're going to start, and I see it in our tradition a lot, you start redefining shepherding not to be the life-on-life stuff that most men are not willing to do with women and most women are not willing for men to do with them. And so what ends up happening is you have a whole segment of a congregation that really lacks the kind of intentional, God-ordained shepherding responsibilities in their lives. Because, you know, at best, we're, we're uncomfortable doing it, except for in some very, you know, significant way. So it's been a phenomenal thing to have these assisting elder women helping, uh, you know, helping in the shepherding ministry of this church. And I, I want to give you a vision of it. But what's the spirit? You hear the spirit of it? The spirit is, if, if you hear what you just read, man, this is overwhelming. To, to do this right. I mean, he, and, and yet God took no. I mean, it's when he, and it, y'all read that Ezekiel 34? <laughs> Whoo! He didn't, he didn't lower the standards one iota. Man, you poor folks, you're, you're dying, man. You're, you're, you're drowning. I, I, you poor guys. No, he didn't do that. He condemned them when they began to redefine their office in, to, in order to suit their abilities. So we don't want to do that. One of the things I had to vow as a pastor, and I hope you vow as a leader. You don't start rereading scripture to fit what I can do. You preach and you condemn yourself every time you preach. You just go ahead and say, yeah, no, I'm not even close, but I'm going to still preach the, the ideal. And keep searching for scripture to help me know how that ideal most gets approximated in the life of the church. Let's don't lower the standards. Let's just keep working at it. 
And, praise God, we have, you know, before a shepherd, an elder, a WLB member, you, a member, me, a pastor, before we were shepherds, praise Jesus, I was a Christian. And I still am. And I'm still a child that God actually loves too. And He actually likes me to be happy too. And I can experience the gospel and the grace of the gospel with my pastor ministry. I'm still a sheep. I'm a sheep first. And foremost. And I could leave the pastor tomorrow and it wouldn't be wrong. But if I left the sheepfold, I would be wrong. In that regard. So that's important to keep that straight. Well, that's chapter 1. Yeah. Um, we kind of bled over to chapter 2, but we'll go ahead. Within our confession, we, we talk about the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And mm-hmm. um, you know, Christ is exemplifying that. And that the church mm-hmm. then um, carries or it enables that mediatorial... Yep. Uh, prophet, priest, and king to a birth day. Is the shepherd aspect an umbrella over the prophet, Perfect. priest, and king, or is it subordinate to certain stations of the prophet? I think it's 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 umbrella. It's the umbrella I think that's the umbrella. That's what I think he's. That's the brilliance. I think this argument. I think it really is shepherd. And now you go to, like, like I mentioned before. There are other metaphors. And as shepherd, you see these offices emerging in redemptive history: the priestly office, the kingly office, the the uh, prophetic office, and they're all aspects of shepherding. Watching over, you know, binding, loosing, king, you know, priestly, the, the whole aspect of, of um, intercession, absolution, administering grace, and, you know, all of that. Um, of course, the prophet declaring, clarifying, teaching. It all comes in. It's interesting that if you lose one of those three, that you're, you're not Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Should be teaching. That's right. Should be mediating. Should be some doing. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Sorry, one other comment that we talked about uh, was James 3 1. Just because with Ezekiel talking about the combination of the shepherds that weren't doing well, mm-hmm. you know, the indictment that teachers are doubly or strictly um, judged. Yep. They, they yeah, there it is. So it's that. Ezekiel 34 all over again in. Yeah. And you'll see that in First Peter, exactly. All right, so let's move on to the second um, uh, aspect of this. What's really interesting to me as we move to this passage, I'm looking for the quote here real quick, but Jeremiah, um, this transition of the New Testament, the prophetic expectation that God was going to appoint shepherds, you know what I'm talking about there? Um, well, let's just go ahead and open it up. Why don't we, just to kind of speed along a little bit, uh, let me just ask just any of you who would like, chapter 2, um, who would like to speak for a group speak? What did your groups talk about? Just jump in. Let's start over here. I don't think we're going to do it quickly if you know. Anything? Well, we kind of spent a fair bit of time on the last part, sort of that distinguishing shepherds from board of directors. And yeah. one of the things that came out was involvement in personally in people's lives yeah. was one of the big differences. That's the good. Board of direction, directors, responsible to just make decisions on behalf of the shareholders, whatever's best for the company kind of idea. Mm-hmm. Whereas the shepherds, they may make decisions, but they are to be involved in the lives of the people under there. pretty huge. Anything else about the board of directors distinction? Yeah. So we sort of struggled with that because it kind of depends on the type of board of directors because there, there's things in here that also talk about you know the plural, pluralistic leadership and board of directors is certainly that 
that it's not letting the CEO make kind of autonomous decisions, but it's mm -hmm. yep. bringing in that yep. balance and that there are, especially if nonprofits, board of directors are very sacrificial in their time and efforts towards the governing and leadership of an organization, but it's not quite the same as Mm -hmm. shepherding office. Mm -hmm. That's true. So the, you can see some overlap, the, the plurality. It's not a CEO that gets to call the shots at the end of the day. But I think your point is good. Yeah? The bottom line is very different in the, in the church as far as the shepherds go and also the timeline mm -hmm. um, is very different. And what do you mean by that? Well, a board of directors like have to make a decision by Friday. Oh. Whereas, um, for fiscal year, whereas in the life of the church, you know, uh, what God is doing in someone's life, that's what matters. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're you're hitting a good theme here, both of all of y'all. Where board of directors has at, at, at the very heart and soul of the board of directors to protect the organization and and to the bottom line, if you will. Whereas it's not so easy. There, it's true the church itself needs to be protected as an institution, but it's it can't lose its mission, which is for its. I mean, to put it in board of directors, customers. The customers matter in a real sense, not just as a valuative, but as a value in their own right. Um, and so there's a sense in which uh, this idea of shepherding is, is really about bringing people into the rule of Christ's benediction rule, into the sphere of Christ's benediction rule. How does the Presbytery fit in this model? Let's just table that. It'll be there. Good question. That's session three. Yeah, go ahead. The mission of board directors is Okay, there's certainly some truth there. One's a human or uh, organization, one's a divine. I mean, their constitution, a board of directors constitution, under the state even, is their own, you know, bylaws. Whereas our bylaws are the scripture. And they don't change. And they don't change. And all we have in the Book of Church Order and the Westminster Convention of Faith is a consensus of what we believe it says... It's an interpretive consensus. That's all it is. Don't confuse the bylaws with... Our bylaws are not the Booker Church Order in Westminster. Even if when we establish ourselves as a 501c3, that's what it is. I mean, we don't say, you know, our bylaws are basically, and it'll show that it's Booker Church Order, basically. As that's the kind of organizational structure. But the Booker Church Order says it's only interpreting, and as good as, it is a good interpretation of Scripture. And so ultimately, the ultimate authority of a church is Scripture itself. Okay, anything else from Chapter 2? Yeah. One thing also in terms of board of directors, the difference is that um, the directors are uh, voted in and they have a certain term where this is a situation that God ordains and God has yeah. set up the time. Yeah. I mean, we talk about it, and you'll see it's a perpetual office. Now, it's interesting um, how much the board of director sociology starts to creep. I mean, there are, and we, we wrestle with this. Uh, should we have term limits for session members? So there are churches that talk about that. And you kind of go back and forth, uh, you know, about, okay, well, I prefer the language of sabbatical. You know, yeah, I think there, there are seasons for sabbatical. But I'm not comfortable with term limits as if I can turn this thing. You're either gifted or you're not. And our, our book of church order really doesn't make much room for that. You can, you can 
some would push it to mean that. But, um, but we certainly don't re, re, re-vote you unless you've, well, I'll go, that gets complicated. I'm not going to get into it. Um, other just general comments about Chapter 2. Uh, what, what we do there, what's really important there is that you see how the, 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 uh, the prophets envisioned a day when God would restore the shepherding ministry. That's, and what I want you to see there is how in Christ he becomes the idyllic perfect shepherd. But it doesn't stop there. He appoints shepherds. He leaves us with shepherds. And we see that very careful institution in the scriptures. So hopefully in that chapter you saw it. Anything you want to, other thing you want to say about chapter 2? We also talked about how like, even as he appoints shepherds, it's not like they, they are doing the shepherding. Christ is doing the shepherding for them. It's still his church. It's mediatorial. Mm. There's that word mediatorial. They are doing it. Don't think they're not working. But their work is... is in the, it's a sacramental union with God and that somehow, in, with, and through the flesh of their activity, God is present among the people. That is the mystery of sacramentalism that affects everything we do in the church. By the way, all three of those, those offices, as, as Craig alluded to, they're all interdependent, codependent, interrelated. I mean, you can't... One of the things I found hard to do, and we've talked about this as a staff, is locate in just any one passage, oh, here's the priest aspects of the church. Here's the king aspect. Because they're all so interconnected. I mean, the Lord's Supper is a great example. How can you possibly administer the Lord's Supper without instruction as to the gospel and a clarity as to who comes and who does not come in? There's a clear prophetic element to the Lord's Supper. There's a clear governing or king work, communal work of the, of the Lord's Supper. Insofar as you've got to be in right relationship with the body of Christ. If you're not in right relationship with the body of Christ, you're not, you're excluded from the Lord's Supper because the body of Christ is the king order kingdom of God. And they're right in chapter 10. I mean, some of you are coming to this table and you're divided among yourselves. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Says Paul. And then, of course, there's also the actual elements of the, of, of the Lord's Supper itself, the mystery of sacramental presence. And the meaning of those elements, all that. So prophet, priest, and king are always there. And a sermon is priestly, not just prophet. Why is that, would you say? Because what the, the role of the pastor is to embed within the, the, the very sermon itself the voice of the people. Your burdens, your cares, your concerns are being lifted to God in the sermon, even as the sermon then re- responds in bringing the voice of God into the situations of the lives of the people. That's why I, I define sermon as a local event necessarily. The moment it's not local, the moment it's not a sermon. Maybe a lot of other good things. It's not a sermon. Yeah. That's equipping the saints. It's it's all related to equipping the saints. That's right. But it's very much the presence of God. Think of that Moses. You know, God, human word direction, human God word direction that goes on in the mountain, that defines the sermon. That defines the shepherd and his role. Always bringing the people up to God, always bringing God to the people, and you're the meat. That's what we call it mediatorial. The church is a mediatorial community. Always God, human word, human God word going on all the time. Um, anything else, chapter 2? Yeah. Well, just as you see the seal of the Holy Spirit on a Christian, aren't we really talking in many ways of seeing the seal of the Holy Spirit on the church? Well, I'm a little nervous about the word seeing the seal. I'm not sure 
what that means. Um, so I want to jump into something I'm not even sure I'm talking about. I'd have to qualify. I'd have to hear you just qualify. What do you mean seeing the seal of the Holy Spirit? Are we looking for to- tongues? Are we looking for... No, no, no. Yeah, are we looking for... See, to me, the seal, if, you, if you're looking for that, is is a communal event. I mean, now we're going to get into this theology. Part of the binding and loosing is that, that I'm discerning God's call in my life. First, am I a Christian? Second, what role do I play in the life of the church? The work of the Spirit is acting through the communal context for me to discern that with my community. And there's a whole lot that goes into that. That's, I would say, there's a key there. But All right, let's go to the third chapter. Um, now, again, I wanted you to be careful. We are going to have a major conversation about order, or polity, we call it. And we'll look at this issue. He, he is uh, you know, faithful to his Presbyterianism. I, I can tell you that um, there are good Presbyterians who would parse it differently in the way he did parse it. For instance, his quoting of Clement. You, so I had you read this, and I want you to remember this chapter, because this is going to be a chapter we're going to go back to in our third session, and I'm going to give you a complementary but slightly different Presbyterian understanding of the history of the offices in Thomas Torrance's article that's going to show you a little different way. So it gets pretty, I'll do it later, but you'll see that we're all reacting to the same material in Scripture, and there are differing views of how to do that, but there's a lot, but what I'm going to try to get you to, and I hope you can get to it even right now, just at least giving me the benefit of the doubt, is that what we all agree on is plurality. Yeah. Plurality. And the necessity of re having continuing what I heard in that, 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 that chapter is a, a, let's do not diminish the ideal paradigm of the office of shepherd. And now how do we see in scripture that this gets accomplished? And herein again I'm gonna begin to give you some categories later, like joint the office of shepherd acting jointly, the office of shepherd acting severally, acting jointly, who are the constituents of that mini-assembly that we call a session? Are they pastors, distinct office from elders? Are they pastors who are, are they elders, some of which are apt to teach and some are not, but they're all just elders? And are the deacons really elders or are the deacons a third office from elders lay elders and their uh, 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 ministry of, of mercy, etc. That's the gist of it. There's, there's, a, there's a one office, Anglican, if you will, or there's a two office, and that would be Presbyterians and a lot of other folks, but in the two office, there's a 2.5, and there's, there's a two and the 2.5, and then there's the three. And you'll see when we get through that, they're all wrestling with how do we bring plurality back into the church? Y'all just laughed at me because I'm just kind of went crazy, right? Huh? Too much math. Too much math. 2.5 really is kind of a perplexing. He wants to be the half office. Yeah, he wants to be the half. You sound like the new in Washington, D.C. I know, yeah. I know it, I know it. Well, I'm just trying to be honest in church history and how, how they've tried to wrestle with it. You'll see what those terms mean. Yeah, the two and a half seems kind of weird to me, but when you see what they're talking about, it kind of makes sense a little bit more. Um, but beyond the issue then, so please let's don't go, but beyond that, what did you see happening in that chapter? Who, what, who, any group want to start us off? Yeah. In chapter 3, um, you know, the... 
there was like a leadership being established that was pulling away from what I thought was kind of the more kind of traditional biblical way of leading. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of setting up kings, little kingdoms mm -hmm. within the church. Okay. Is that what your group talked about? Yeah. yeah. Sort of the pluralistic leadership versus people starting to become mm -hmm. only the bishop could forgive sins and mm -hmm. that it wasn't the pluralistic bishops and deacons that Clemens mm -hmm. uh, talked about. Okay, good. I mean, you really do see Clemens, that little, I think it's a beautiful uh, quote piece where he, he's willing to, to leave the church if he's getting in the way of shepherding. And that that's, should be true for all of us. That I will decrease so that the church might increase in its shepherding ministry. And that's not just directed to Clement, the pastor, but it's also directed to the spirit of true leadership where we're not willing to divide the baby <laughs> in the Solomonic wisdom sense. We're not willing to do that. We're willing to make sure that it's cared for. Other thoughts, though, is a lot. I know that was, I'm really glad you got it because it, it was a nice little church history review that brings us to the Scottish American tradition that we're calling ourselves as Presbyterians. Um, but any other observations about that? Any groups? Yeah. Uh, as you might imagine, uh, it was difficult for me. Yeah, uh, vocabulary more, yeah. And, and so forth. But I think one of the things that's going through uh, here is I'm used to hearing about shepherding and oversight and eldership and, and so forth in terms of the function, not in terms of the office or the title. And in, in going after what does the Bible have to say about this function, so this kind of what you said about when you're giving a, a, a sermon there's several functions going on uh, in there. But it seems to me that there's a, a grappling in here. Uh, with, all right, given the functions now, how do we organize those functions? And, and the other day, it's a, it's a struggle for what we call, in the modern parlance, job descriptions. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's like, how do I know if I'm doing a good job or not as a pastor? How do I know if, if an elder's doing a good job? I mean, that's what it is. Right. It's, and that's what we started talking about with yeah. the chapter one, yeah. is what's the job of a shepherd? Yeah. Uh, this is huge. Um, I would say the burnout, I mean, the burnout rate among pastoral ministry is, is higher than I think any other vocation. Uh, there's incredible research that's being done as to why. And one of the things that that, uh, that comes out over and over and over again is, again, the, the exasperation of, of undefined expectations for the pastor. And, and I would say this is true to a lesser degree. You don't make your livelihood as a lay elder, so it's not as significant, obviously. But in, in, in terms of the effect that it has upon your family, etc. But because you can kind of leave it and do your other thing all week and at least say, okay, am I a good scientist or not? Have I, have I done what I'm supposed to do? And so there's a sense in which that is, interestingly, that you bring that out. Um, that is probably uh, one of the main issues that, that is driving people away from this broad, evangelical, loosey goosey, you know, matters like this aren't important. Let's just talk about Jesus and heaven. You know, there's a sense in which, though, yeah, but when you really get down to trying to do and be a kingdom of God, you know, to leave these, these roles, these functions, as you say, to just kind of, everyone, in, you know, in a, I mean, you can put yourself in the life of any church pastor. You, you can understand that here's a person that really wants you to be compassionate. Here's a person who really wants you to be very, you know, very hard, uh, 
skin and, and run a, a, an efficient and well-run an organization. You know, here's a person who wants you to, you know, have the skin thick as, as a mile deep and, and let everything bounce off you, but then turn right around. And here's a person who says he wants you to cry when you share his concerns with you. There's a sense in which pastors go, this is just killing me, you know, and so, and I work with young pastors, and this is where this conversation is very helpful, not only for them, but for all of us who want to be leaders, is what, what's my job? You know, what does God, what has God told me to do? And as long as I can measure and I can approximate that, all the, you know, every individual expectations as to what a pastor or an elder should be or a servant WLB or whatever it is, all of those can come, but at the end of the day, there's a real clear sense, you see it in Peter, where your boss is the one I'm, you know, is Jesus Christ. He's, my, he's our boss. And if I can be confident that my boss is happy, he knows the complexities, he understands what was happening in the ebb and flow of that week. He knows if you, you, you know, why he didn't spend more time here because something else was happening over here. You know, and, and that's true for any of you in your work. You just think about all of you. You, 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 know, you just think about how you want to know. How, how do I get evaluated every year? You know, your annual evaluation or whatever it is. Well, if you were to have an annual evaluation and you were to leave it to an undisciplined, unbiblically defined, just what everybody wants in their own eyes out of you, if, if poor Stephen went over there to his boss and, you know, well, let's just poll the world and figure out what they want you to be doing here, I mean, he's going to say, I'm out of here, <laughs> Right? So that's the kind of thing that you have in a populist organization like the church. I see the same thing, by the way, in the presidency. I see it all over our country right now. I mean, I don't think it's humanly possible to walk away from the presidency and be popular. I mean, I don't think it's possible. I think you're going to have everyone wanting to suck out of that office what they themselves see as that office's function for them. And we have we have an undefined sort of you know office system going on. At some point, we got to really redefine it. And in the church, we have a manual to do that. It's called our Bible, and that's what we're trying to do here. So that's a really good point. That but that's where the office question gets important because office presupposes a job description. What is the job description of an elder? Very important. Anything else? I'm gonna. We're, we have one more item to do. We're gonna get you out here absolutely no later than twelve, as promised. Um, so uh, if you want to take a one minute break, and then I'm just gonna close it up for us uh, with what we're gonna do next, and we'll be out of here no later than twelve. Really short though, just a two minute. <laughs> Two minutes. I'm used to saying two minutes meaning five, so you know that. So, and have I ever said? I don't think I've ever calculated less time than I thought. Or, or, or you know what I'm saying? I think I'm not sure that's what I said. I'm an optimist, and then I, and it always ends up being longer. So, but I'm just going to look at the clock, and we're going to be out of here. I'm going to really be thinking that, regardless of whatever, because we got other times to do stuff. Yeah.
was put in uh, after it was called session one all of that stuff we just did she has it under that's fine we they have it under introduction and then session one well session one really is they're, they're really one and the same but just so you know that's where it is um, so session one and um, is where we are and um, we're going to look at this handout real briefly before we go home as you're doing that, let me just give you a couple of heads up. Uh, next month, readings are probably going to be one of the most difficult for you. Um, it's in a vernacular you're not used to. Um, there's a little polemicalness in it. You'll see that he is, uh, for my Episcopalian friends, my Anglican friends, I should say, um, I refer to that. They're coming in this church. They're going to be Presbyterians. They already are. But the point is, is uh, I, I love them. Oh, I know. Yeah, we haven't, that's true. We haven't done the, the binding yet, so we, we better watch it. So, but, but I say this because, you know, tr- you know in, in church history, as you read a lot of it, you begin to realize that there's a kind of, there was, there was an affirmed polemical tone. I mean, you, you, you know, they would banter and they will fight and, and, claw a little bit, and I think we are accustomed to that, because, you know, but I, I think, uh, you know, so when you read Bannerman, you know, he's going to be taking some shots, you know, the way I read these guys is, uh, and it's, it's not, for the most part he won't, it's pretty good, but every once in a while you'll, you'll probably detect, if you're familiar with the debates, oh, that was a shot on that, that was a shot on that, um, but really, what I like about Bannerman particularly is, is it's one of the best 
let's really think from Scripture about these matters seriously. And it really is a, a classic. Uh, so just the thing, I, the way I would approach the readings is, is I would take them in the, usually I'd take them in the order. Notice that if they have a, a bullet that's a, a solid bullet, those are things that I'm hoping you'll read before you come. If it's a hollow bullet, those are things that I'm recommending but you don't have to read. And um, handout will be given before you get here, so that won't be in the, the readings. So, you know, you take a little look at the Confession of Faith, you take a look at the church order. Um, if you want to know that, where to get those, you can go on, we put it here, um, you, you know, basically go on to the uh, CCB, go to this slide, open it, and you can go right to it, then you can save it uh, in your drive. Um, I'm using the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church uh, version of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the same as ours. I'm using it rather than the PCA, if you wanted the PCA line, because the PCA just puts down a PDF document. And you're going to have to scroll like crazy to find everything. This actually has uh, hyperlinked the titles, I mean the chapters, in a way that you can go right to it and find it easier. So it's just an easier system. Unfortunately, I could not find a book of church order that's hyperlinked. Um, and so you're going to have to just do the scroll. If anybody knows of a church or book order out there, do you? I think Kevin just told me that he found one. He did, because I asked Kevin to look for one. Well, well, well if we find one, i got to make sure it's the same version as we're on right now in the PCA. Because the book of church order gets changed quite frequently in terms of the particulars. Whereas the Westminster's are pretty static, even though it's been changed since we got to America. You took theology, you know where and when um, and, and the subscription act, because uh, we just talked about that. But anyway, so read those real briefly. But when you get to these readings... What I found in, in, in modern education is that you tend to read in a very scientific way. It's going to be hard to read this, you know, at least I talk about this, like a mathematician. Uh, you, just go ahead and let yourself keep reading and, and don't get caught up on one sentence if it bothers you because you're going to find context will really begin to emerge for you. And, and so just kind of keep the flow, keep the movement. Don't get bogged down on a sentence. Don't get bogged down on something. You know, just kind of keep going. Keep asking what what generally is happening here. I'm much more concerned that you read that way. Read with with a big picture than trying to really tie every every everything down too precisely. Because I think there's an argument being made, and I don't want you to miss the argument for the sort of the little details. Does that make sense? So I'm just giving you a little bit ahead of how to read historical documents like this. Um, so John, James Murray, uh, James Bannerman, and then John Murray, uh, that's also, all of these readings are in your CCB. You do not have to order anything. They're all right there for you. Uh, the Weak and the Strong is just a little essay. Uh, and everything you're going to be reading is going to be about the issue of how do we define church power in a very general sense. What is the power of the church? Um, uh, its extent, its limits, etc. And then we'll come back. I'll have a handout. We'll unpack it for you. Um, so I hope it'll be fun for you. But it's a good introduction to Scottish 19th century Scottish theology. So enjoy. And, and, those, and these books are great. And I wish so bad I could get you some more. But anyway, any questions about that? So what I wanted to conclude with, I'm going to assume that you've read the Keller. Uh, I think the gist of Keller... Um, let me see where that is. Oh, oh man, I do that, and then you have to. What do I got to do here to get it back? I'm doing it now. I got to start all over. Somebody, you got to do that, don't you? Start the start the slideshow again. There you go. Thank you. Um, 
let's see where we are. Where's the shipping steward leader? There we go. What do y'all what do y'all hear as Keller's general thesis? Being a servant. The doulos. Now who are you a servant of? Or steward. What steward is related to what? That's key. What would you serve? Master. Your master. master. There it is. That's just another metaphor he's using in the scriptures there about uh, that, that passage, remember, he alludes to, and you know, God is the, the vineyard owner. God is the master of the house. And that's a very important thing. I, I tell you, you'll go crazy if you forget that in ministry. You know, you'll go crazy. You've got to remember who your master is. Your master isn't the opinion of people. Your master is not pleasing there, everybody. Your master is God. You've got to keep your focus on that. Now, a God who loves the people. So now it's not interrelated. But what love is and how you define love and the priorities of love have to come from the master, what his intention for the vineyard is, and what his intention for the household is. And so it really is, that's a very key thing. So first of all, the idea of steward sets up a beautiful paradigm of there's a master in my life and I am his slave. Did you notice what else did Keller do? He really didn't want to back off the slave language. And I was appreciative of that. We tend to do that. And he did a nice little, you know, excursus on the way slavery has been, you know, in different eras, been different things, and, um, you know, we, we won't go there right now, but, but I think there's some, you know, he, it's a good little point to remember that don't just assume American slavery, you know, when you read the Bible slavery. There was aspects of American-style slavery in the Bible, by the way. If you read Amos, I mean, I don't know how you could have American-style slavery and read Amos, um, who decried it so vis- viciously, really. But, but there's an aspect of slavery, this kind of indentured sort of thing and, you know, that he describes. It's, it's a sense in which you know, uh, it's just a different concept, and it certainly wasn't racially biased, etc. But there was also slavery that was. I mean, it, I mean, let's just admit it. In the Bible, there's conquering nations and making Canaanite slaves. You know? um, and so that's, 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 that's you know, a pretty messy history. We have to read it in the sense of what the Scripture does with it. But the key thing, back to the point, is... What did y'all get out of that? The fact that he didn't want to back off of slave. Yeah, we're slaves. There's a master. What did y'all get from that? Well, I, I, and he said we can't do what we want, and yet on the other hand, he makes it abundantly clear he's the only one in the universe who can control, who can control us without destroying us. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. It's like a bondage of the will. Yeah, it was. What does it mean to be truly free? Yeah. 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 So he get, that gets him into that interaction, doesn't he? Yeah. Lisa noted, he, uh, and I was grateful that she pointed this out as we drive you know she's doing the Galatians study uh, in her Bible study and you know Keller is doing here what we all do after we've been in ministry for a while he's, he's re-packaging um, you know this almost that whole conversation is in the Galatians study almost word for word even Lisa says she goes oh I can see whole sentences being done that shows you my wife she's got that brain where she can remember these sort of things I'm, I'm like where did I get that oh yeah he's quoting you know, I'm good but um, you know, so but 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 it's a repackaging a little bit if you've been if you've had that study, which is one of our more prominent studies. But yeah, I think that's a very important thing. That what what is true freedom? Mm-hmm. And true freedom is to serve the right master who really serves you mm-hmm. and who cares for you. We all have a master though. Mm-hmm. 
There's nobody with that idol. Another way to put that is we all have an idol. We all have a master. And so it's being set free to, to, to the master that, that is a true and good master or shepherd master. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts there? Um, I think I was struck by the the, the, the idea with the just being reminded that a servant is a contractual thing. I can do it as long as it seems to be of some benefit to me. Yeah. Um, and I think we often look at Christianity like that, and people are like, "Well, you know, all right, I can live a Christian life if, if it seems to flourish me or yeah. whatever." But yeah. Yeah. Good point. The idea of the slave ship is not contractual. Yeah. It, it's 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 unconditional. Yeah. Um, That's good. I was intrigued by the tension at the very beginning between, on the one hand, we're servants, slaves, on the other hand, we're rulers. So he was drawing that to this issue here, that there's a sense in which you're under rulers as a slave. That's a steward. But that's getting back to that steward idea. That I'm stewarding a house, which means I'm supposed to be ruling it well for the for the master. But there's a rule. I notice your. What do you think of that? Well, I, I was really struck where that you know Adam and Eve were stewards of the creation and yep. rulers of it, but yeah. they were serving God. Yeah. They, they they had dominion, but they didn't own it. That's right. That's a good. That's a great illustration. Yeah. So I think that's really. When I think of ministry and leadership myself, um, that's that's the tension that's really, I think that's a really, I mean, that, that deserves another chapter, just that. You know, how, how do you bring the, 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 the slave-servant culture into your life and ministry, but without abrogating the fact that there needs to be a, a leader? You need to lead. You're not following. You're leading as a servant leader. But you're a leader. And that's very important. I find that uh, that's, a, that's a real hard tension uh, I've noticed over the years in ministry in this church and other places that being a servant is leading from behind kind of thing, but the role of shepherd and the role of, of all these things, it's a leading from the front kind of thing. You don't, you don't, you know, you've got to be able to be proactive. You're not just waiting for people to, you know, at least now we're talking a little bit over here. I mean, we all enjoy serving people and being liked when you serve. You know, oh, I'm there for you when you need me. I'm there for you when, you know, you need my prayers. And I'm here to support you and all of that. But, but that's not a steward. The steward comes at it with some, you know, there's a sense of proactiveness where times, you know, to put blunt, you're going to be entering someone's life and with a with a intentionality and a plan and a, and a goal and and you have this to talk about and you have this issue if you may need to correct. You're, there's there's that whole range of ministry that's envisioned with the weeds of Scripture is an instruction, teaching, training, and righteousness, etc. And you're a leader. And that's what discipleship is. It's not just um, come and support people when they want my support. It's a leader. There's humility involved. With I always it's humility. Yeah. There's humility, but there's also authority. True. So whatever, that, that's the tension, see? Right. Either way. There's authority, though. I, I come on behalf of God. Sure, hum, humble to believe that God only can make law. When you get to the extent of power, you're going to say, boy, that, this next week is so big and important for us. Make sure you slow down next week when we do the, those readings. But see, you're, you're addressing the tension exactly. I mean, I, I, I don't make laws as, as, a, as a steward. 
God makes the laws. He's the legislator. I'm just ministerial. Bringing those laws and implementing them. Uh, you first, you second, you third. Go. You answer. Okay, second. I was going to say, the humility actually allows us to have more authority. Yeah. yeah. It allows us in the perception of others, but it also gives, it's given me a lot more authority because I know it's not myself. In fact, thank you. Excellent point. Excellent point. I mean, the, the more humble, the more yourself is not in the way, and it's not this complex you're working through. And now you're there on behalf of God. And the, and the humility to submit to the Word of God means I have no problem asking you to submit to the Word of God. That, excellent, excellent point. And I really think that's, we could talk a lot about what you just said there, because uh, I think that really is the core. The more humble you are, the more bold you're going to be. Um, if you're up there trusting yourself as the strength of ministry, you're, you're just insecure and you're going to come across real in, in real humble looking. Well, that's when burnout comes too, because you're carrying the load. Yes, right. That's right. <coughs> yes, that's a good distinction. I like that. We think there's in our culture. Yeah. Self-effacing sort of stuff, yeah. And in a sense, modesty and self-effacing can be a very attention-drawing to me. Humility, just lose yourself and let Christ come through you, whatever He wants to be. All right, good. Did I miss anybody? Keller went right from the only the humble obedient servant can be entrusted to rule, and then he went right into the story as a ruler with real authority to grow and prosper, resources under him. He may not shrink back from making bigger excuse of the power. Here it is. And sometimes we have the thing of, of just do no harm kind yeah. of thing, and which is very clearly saying, no, we're supposed to make bigger excuse of this. It's supposed to be a proactive yeah. caring for what you've been entrusted to steward. Yeah. And then that's that's kind of a reminder that it's supposed to be yeah. a very engaged, proactive working out yeah. there. You know, it, yeah. Uh, the, the steward's master is best served when the steward is equipping and enabling the servants to do their very best work. Yep, that's an aspect of it. I don't want to tie just to that, but that's an aspect. Helping them fulfill their purpose for the steward. Yes, I agree. That's good. That's right. I mean, I, the reason I'm being cautious because I don't know where, how far. There's some who will interpret Ephesians 4. I don't know if you had that in your head or not. You probably didn't. But there's, there's some who would interpret Ephesians 4 as equipping the saints, meaning you don't go out and pastor and minister. You tell them how to pastor and minister. The pastor isn't the pastor. They're the pastor. There's nothing you could, there's no way you could read that scripture biblically and with the Greek to say that. But, I wasn't thinking of it. Good. But, so I just want to make sure that, yeah, but no, you know, forgive me. You know, I happen to I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I know, no. I didn't think you did. Well, I knew you knew it was there, but you know what I'm saying. All right, let's go on. Um, I want to uh, get to this uh, thing here. So we, we can, and, you know, in about just a little 10 minutes, I just want to make sure you, you see some things. Um, so let's, let's transition, and I wanted to right up the beginning, I think it's important to let you know where, at least for some of you, this may be going. Um, and again, don't feel like, it, I'm glad everyone is here. It just excites me to know in, no matter whether you aspire to an office of, of shepherd elder or shepherd uh, woman leader or not, in a formal sense, this is going to help you. You're getting ministry training, you're getting a church training, you're beginning to think, how do I live and how do I minister in light of the kingdom of God that God has given us through the church? 
and it's going to be a great thing for you regardless. So it's great that you're here regardless of where you are. Um, but for, but here's where it move, begins to move. And a kind of summary, uh, would someone just, let, we have three paragraphs there. Um, how would you discern a call? Well, of course, the first is to discern the gravity of it and the sense as to what it is you're being called to. Uh, could I just have three people read these three paragraphs? They're in your training manual. Eight point, yeah. This is book of church order definition or description of the elder. I'll start. This office is one of dignity and usefulness. The man who fills it has in scripture different titles expressive of his various duties. As he has the oversight of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. As it is his duty to be grave and prudent, an example to the flock, and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ, he is termed presbyter or elder. As he expounds the word, and by sound doctrine both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer, he is termed teacher. These titles do not indicate different grades of office, but all describe one and the same office. Now, there, that, that last line, and even the way it's phrased, you'll see in three weeks is contended even among traditions of Presbyterians. This represents what you will hear as the two, two and a half office view. Um, and we'll talk about it. But the gist is still important. Um, 8.2. He that fills this office should possess a competency of human learning and be blameless in life, sound in the faith, and apt to teach. He should exhibit a sobriety and holiness of life becoming the gospel. He should rule his own house well and should have a good report of them that are outside the church. So the dignity of the office, 8.1. Uh, the the uh, office itself, in terms of the qualifications of the office, of course you see a summary there, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus uh, 2, and then 8.3. The, the, here we get into the uh, activities, if you will, or the job description. Who he is? What his qualifications are, job description. Who's next? It belongs to those in the office of elder, both separately and jointly, to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge, that no corruption of doctrine or of morals enter their own. They must exercise government and discipline, and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church, but also the church generally when called there into. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant, comfort the mourner, nourish and guard the children of the church. They should set a worthy example to the flock and trust to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted and make disciples. All those duties which private Christians are bound to discharge by the law of love are especially incumbent upon them by divine vocation and are to be discharged as official duties. They should pray with and for the people, being careful and diligent in seeking the fruit of the preached word among the there's so much there that needs to be unpacked, isn't there? And we will. But what, what are some of the things that you hear uh, in this very simple, official sort of summation of, of the office? They should be completely sold out. To... Good. They should be sold out. I like that. Not that they're not struggling, not that they're not having struggles, etc., but they're going to be sold out with continuing the struggle. <laughs> I think that's important. I mean, where do you see that especially... <laughs> It's interesting. Um, where does it say it here? This. I mean, I, 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 yeah. Go ahead. I'll just let it. People talk. Same duty as private Christians. Isn't that it? Well, it's same duty, but exemplary. But sold out. Yeah, sold out. It's, it's, uh, especially incumbent upon them. Yeah. But that's interesting. That 
this isn't any different than we're all called to be. Well, there's some things that are different here. Not all are called to govern and discipline. And, 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 and whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of those things. It's interesting. You could read that passage as, in summary, just be a good Christian. I think this is an actual extra line item. I think what he's saying is, in addition to governing, in addition to disciplining, in addition to this specific role of, of visiting the people when they're sick, etc., generally... You're supposed to be a good Christian. <laughs> you know, everything there by us is supposed to be. And so you look at the law of love is what they're doing there. Look at the law of love. What does love say for all believers to be, as you're saying? And yeah, this is someone who has a zeal for that and who's exemplary in that. I think that's a really important observation. Thank you. Others? Well, it points out that start with it both separately and jointly. So yeah, there it is. You, this is how you are going to be by yourself. That's right. The distinction goes in several directions. On the one hand, the distinction is going to be, and you'll see this next week in my, my little first things. I give you a real s- short summary of sort of the a framework for ecclesiology before you read Bannerman. Hopefully that's really short. It's take, it takes two chapters of a thesis and it puts it into about a couple pages, you'll see. So I may be too short. But um, the gist there, you'll see it there, is that when, when there is... The authority of jurisdiction, or what we call jurisdictional authority. That is, when you bind and loose and then affect your relationship to the church. That can only be done acting jointly. Preston Graham can't come and excommunicate you. Uh, you know, Rick Olson can't come and excommunicate you. Preston Graham can't make rules for the church. Rick Olson can't make rules for the church. You see what I'm saying? That's only can be done when we are seated in session. That's biblical language. You know, when God rests, if you look at him, he's seated in session. That means he's ruling. He's not sleeping. He's ruling. He's in session. Chapter 2 of Genesis. Kinging, lording over all of creation and all these many lords, underlords. He's the king of kings, but they're kings that he rules over. And so, only when the session acts jointly, that is, they're seated under quorum, with a plurality of elders acting jointly, is the rule of the church uh, uh, exercised jurisdictionally, as in to affect the whole. Okay, you got that? Severally are all those things that individual elders do, along with those who assist them, you'll see as in Matthew 18, wherein we act one way to look at it is moral influence. It's, it's where we have influence. It's where we are having influence and helping people come under the sphere of Christ's rule in their life. It could be, you know, like I said, instruction, prayer, encouragement, visitation, teaching, correction, reproof, rebuke. All of those things can happen, but they don't have the effect of what you might describe as a censure. So if I come to Craig, and I say, Craig, brother, you know, we, I need to, I, I feel from Scripture I need to talk to you about a, an area of sin in your life. And I want to, you know, humbly rebuke you for doing this. There's a rebuke that comes, but it's several. doesn't have the effect of, on behalf of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ, Craig, boom. It's Preston Graham, a pastor, elder, but Preston Graham... Working with Scripture, helping you to discern something in your life. That's very different than an official, in-the-minute statement 
where on behalf of Jesus Christ in the church, I therefore declare, boop, 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 boop. It's a different feeling. Almost every time it happens in a session meeting and I'm, I'm doing it, I cry. There's a sense in which I go, whoa. You know, the church has acted here. And it's a much more powerful moment to reclaim sinners to themselves. As well as absolution, by the way. You wonder sometimes why we'll raise our hands on behalf of Jesus Christ. Now what we're doing there, this is a great example of joint versus several. What's happening when we do that is we are not declaring benediction on you personally. We are representing the joint action of this church that, it, that admitted you to the sacraments. Wherein for those who are members in good standing of a gospel-believing church, that's in they have been admitted by the church acting jointly to the sacraments, which is to bring them under the sphere of Christ's rule and all his benediction blessings. I keep using that word benediction blessings or benediction rule, because that's all the way that's the only way that God rules, benediction rule. We're we're putting a hand up. And you'll hear people say sometimes, and people kind of go, why do you say that? On behalf of Jesus Christ and His church, I declare to you, all we're doing, all I'm doing is I'm declaring what the session has has, has acted on. That's all I'm doing. I'm saying to you that Jesus Christ spoke into your life, and I want you to feel the effect of that. This is not Preston's opinion about you. This is the church of Jesus Christ's opinion about you, if you're a member of the Good Standing of the Gospel of the Church. You see, that's a joint act. That's why there are certain things in Scripture where non-ordained people will not do it. Because they should be doing it in, in, in the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. And we've lost that. And I'm going to tell you, now I'm going to go on a soapbox for half a minute here. But we need that. We need to, to clarify that better to our, to our world. Because it's a much deeper, abiding assurance when I know that my relationship to Jesus Christ is not based on my emotions at this moment, it's not based upon Preston Graham's opinion of me this moment, it is based upon the word of Jesus Christ, who, as we have seen, has authorized the church, acting jointly, to bind and loose. So that man, when Satan comes in there says, man, you're screwed, you know, how could a Christian still be struggling with that sin? I can go back and say, well, get away from me, Satan, because the church of Jesus Christ has declared, I'm all right. So, take a, take a hike. You see? Now, you can't say that quite with such authority when my good friend, Pastor Preston Graham, tells me I'm all right. Very different. So, this is very important. Joint is the, is the church acting jurisdictionally. There's language in, in Latin that you'll see later that talks about all that. Versus the church acting severally. It's all those activities that presage, that, that uh, move toward the steps. We call them the stages of, of discipline or the stages of ministry. Going to a person personally, trying to impact them. Going to a person with another witness, trying to impact them. But not until it comes to the church acting jurisdictionally or jointly do you have this formal sort of, 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 a, of an event happening. So I'm sorry for that, but I just feel like you're going to keep coming across these, whoever said that, you. It's great that you, yeah, there's, very right up there in front, there's distinguishing the two. And it's very significant. And I, I just hope that you see the good news of this. The power to release you of guilt is much greater. And the power to correct you is so that you get restored to God is much greater because of this distinction.
And it's really pretty cool that God was that proactive in setting this stuff up, as you'll see in the Bible. It's all there. All right? So that's stage one. Stage one is just, you're thinking about the gravitas of this. All right? I got a half a minute. Stage two, training. Stage three, stage three, concurrent test. Now, this is this is the only thing, other thing I want to point out. I won't read all this. You can read it yourself. But you'll notice how in our book of church order, it's very distinguished that there's a there's an inward testimony, there's an outward testimony, the, the congregational affirmation, and there's the confirmation of session examination of, of your peers. I hope you see the wisdom of that. This is not a self-appointed guy who becomes an elder pastor or any key leader in the church. It's a process that's made communally. It certainly begins with your own sense of calling, your own sense of measuring yourself to the duties. You see these duties here and you go, is that something I feel a burden to do? Is this something I see needs to happen in the church, first of all, etc., etc., etc.? And I can tell you, we need more elders. We need more elders. It's overwhelming. We need more WLB members. We need them. Okay? God's calling you if you're called. You know? But... But you, you, do I see myself moving in that direction? Um, number two is, uh, at some point, we're, you know, we're going to see if others who you are going to serve see you in that light. Which presupposes that you've already been acting as a key leader in some sense. At some level, people need to say, yeah, I've seen this person do this. My small group leader, my you know, teacher, whatever. And I've, I've observed the kinds of things that said, so in some ways you're not making a person an elder, you're affirming that he already is. <laughs> By the way, he lives his life, or women. And then there's an examination. Why? Because we in Presbyterianism are bottom-up and top-down. We're not just top-down, hierarchical. We're not just bottom-up, congregational. We're bottom-up, top-down, both. We're going to have, a, we're gonna have a, a members of peer elders judge you. Why? Makes sense because they should be able to discern things that a common person wouldn't as to heresy, as to issue characters, etc. But, you know, you're not ordained. I'm not ordained as a pastor until some congregation calls me and says, you know what, we see in this person the kind of things that, that mean I want this person to be my pastor. And if no one sees that, or if a, if a, I would say a super majority don't see that in a local congregation, I would never go there. Because... You know, that's part of the will. That's how God speaks through the church corporately. So I want you to see the beauty of this. That God, we believe God speaks through communal corporate speaking, not through individualism. There's a very communal thing that you see in these three steps happening in there. All very carefully worked out. And then finally, um, that's it. You see the, uh, the vows. You might want to read that. Um, but that now ends our meeting. Um, I did it on time. I want to hear some applause. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're on time. Yeah, that helps. Everyone wants to hear that. Uh, you may go and uh, eat, but let's just at least close in prayer. Father, thank you for every man and woman in this room. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, period. Amen. Amen.